0: listening to radio Sputnik, Sputnik telling the untold welcome to the open university of the airwaves with George Galloway only on Sputnik radio
1: welcome to the mother of all talk shows the open university of the airwaves there are no tuition fees and you are positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher So, didn't matter how alert we were, the coronavirus is back big time. In fact, according to reports this morning, Britain may be only days away from another general lockdown. What could possibly go wrong? Well, what's going wrong in the United States where the economy and it seems the society is in free fall, where a mad bear called Donald Trump is still managing to breathe down the neck of Joe Biden. I hope the hairs don't rise on his legs when he does. We'll be asking how come Trump is still in touch, still with a chance of winning, whilst in Britain where utter scandalous incompetence on an Everestian scale is evident daily from the Conservative government in Westminster ...that the Tory polling is going up and the Labour polling is going down. Why isn't that Sir Keir Starmer 20 points ahead? You see what I did there? We'll be asking that in the course of our first opinion poll. The reality is uh, that the charisma bypass that is Keir Starmer doesn't seem to be working. Well, this is rock and roll radio, but with pictures... So fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's the mother of all talk shows.
0: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free.
1: This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, of course, but coming to you all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. In Washington, D.C., we're on FM. 25.5 are the magic numbers there. On AM, right across America from Burning City to Burning City. 1390 are the numbers there operating out of Maryland. And you can listen all over the globe, of course, on the aforementioned SputnikNews.com online. And if you are one of the half a million people who watched as well as listened, I've got a message to you. Last week, we had another record number of viewers. And one of the reasons for that is that people shared it. If you're watching right now on my Facebook or on RT's multiple Facebook pages, please share with all of your friends and your contacts. Because we never know when the algorithms will seek to strangle us again. We need to build the biggest audience Possible on the broadest number of platforms possible. That's why you can watch us on YouTube as well. You can watch us on Twitter. You can even watch on Instagram and on Twitch, whatever that is, and I think increasingly on other platforms. And don't forget that next month we'll be beginning a Moats Extra on a Wednesday night, a mother of all talk shows extra midweek which won't have anything to do with RT. It's entirely stand alone, so you'll have to pay for it, but it's only one dollar, and I promise you, it's going to be worth waiting for. Now, the Russians take this coronavirus so seriously, they sent someone over from Moscow who greeted me at the door in a hazmat suit because they'd heard a rumor that I had been asking for a coronavirus test, but I was asking for you. And for you and you and all the millions of people who simply cannot get a coronavirus test, whether they're young, middle-aged or old, I didn't mean me, uh, when they have symptoms, like a cough as I did, like a slight temperature as I did. But I tried day and night for three whole days to get a slot anywhere at all. I was ready to drive by anywhere to get a coronavirus test and I couldn't even get an answer never mind a coronavirus test. Now, we have spent uncountable billions of pounds of public money on a testing regime, a testing system which simply hasn't worked. And the contracts for that were handed out without tender and without any concept, obviously, of performance-related pay to Companies oftentimes with absolutely no track record at all in that field. And all of them had the common denominator of being friends with leading figures in the Conservative government. This is a gigantic scandal. In fact, if we close down this week, as the Sunday papers are suggesting we might, back to square one, you remember it, stay home, save lives protect the NHS. We did that too late, and we lifted that too early. You'll remember here when it changed. Stay alert, like you can stay alert to a coronavirus and get back to work. Everyone pushed out of their homes that they were previously told to stay in. Well, neither approach has worked. The virus is back, thousands of people are getting it now every day, and the numbers are doubling every week, doubling. And we are within days of losing control, according to a member of the SAGE panel Uh, earlier today. SAGE is the scientific advisory group to the government. And if that happens, then we're back to square one. We're back to staying home, saving lives, trying to protect the NHS, but why didn't the NHS get the job of carrying out the tests? Why didn't the local authorities who know the areas that they represent get the job? Why did it have to go to bandit capitalist outfits who have utterly failed in the task that they were so lavishly paid for? I'll be asking that question in the course uh, of this evening with uh, Dr. Ranjit, but maybe also with others. What's the difference, by the way, between normal capitalism and bandit capitalism? Well, in one word, it's a C word, forgive me. Carillion. We'll be talking to Bob Wiley, my old friend and author of the best new book of the year, Bandit Capitalism, about the Carillion scandal. Now, you might not have been affected by the collapse of this Ponzi scheme called Carillion, But you might be wrong, uh, because when you survey the wreckage of Britain that was left by the collapse of Carillion, you'd be amazed at the people and places that were affected. Nowhere on the globe is, of course, as stricken right now as the United States of America. Just ponder that for a moment. The world's most powerful country, the world of whom it used to be sung, I want to be an American, a country that had such soft power that almost all of us grew up on their television and their film and their music and to some extent also uh, their sports, not the ones they baudlerized from us, but some of the other sports, athletics, boxing and so on at which they excelled. America bestrode the world like a colossus. Now, it's on its knees. Its economy is in absolute free fall. Its society is falling apart at the seams. And yet, two sclerotic, elderly, dubious mentally, candidates are punching it out, if you want to call it that, for president in November. Whether the big ugly bear, (laughs) Donald Trump, is going to scrape home again, or whether a man who not only can't tie shoelaces, given up wearing shoes with laces, but doesn't know his wife from his sister, doesn't know which state he's in, doesn't know which office he's running for, is being worked from the back by the Oligarchs of the Clinton Obama era, and who'll be quickly pushed over a cliff, maybe even literally, if he gets in in November. And then we'll have President Kamala Harris. What could possibly go wrong? We'll be talking to Dr. Richard Wolfe in just a few minutes. He is the intellectual political colossus. He should be the president of the United States. Never mind Bernie Sanders, he's cleverer than Bernie Sanders. Never mind Bernie Sanders, he's a better orator than Bernie Sanders. If they listened to him, America would not be in the state it's in. But he's not running for president. But he is now a regular on our show. And we're very, very lucky to have him. Here's the first poll. Why is Sir Keir Starmer not 20 points ahead in the polls? That's what they used to say about Jeremy Corbyn after all. And that was when the conservative government wasn't one-tenth as cataclysmically stupid, incompetent and wrong as it is exposed to be today. Why is Sir Keir Starmer not 20 points ahead in the polls? A, he's not human. That's a good one actually. To me, he's a desiccated calculating machine. But the only thing he's calculating is his own interests and the interests of the Blairite comprador that he has gathered around himself. B, he's dull. My goodness, that goes without saying. So wooden, the birds are trying to nest in him. C, he's Tony Blair without the laughs. Well, that is interesting because there was a poll this week. They did win. And that poll asked who was the most similar to Tony Blair in the British political firmament. I can hardly say firmament without laughing. And of course, Sir Keir Starmer won it out the park. He is Tony Blair, but without the redeeming features of Tony Blair. Tony Blair could make you feel uh, like you were 10 foot tall. Tony Blair had charm. He had humor. Polish, he was an orator of sorts, even though it was all scripted and on an auto-cue. But Keir Starmer can't do any of those things. He's an automaton. That's my view of him. I'd vote for all three of those, but you can take your pick which is the most apocite. Keir Starmer, uh, you're getting it tonight. So, after this brief break, We've got Dr. Richard Wolfe, professor of economics, author of Understanding Socialism, host of Economic Update, and co-founder of democracyatwork.info on all things American. I'll be right back.
2: Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for a regular segment called Criminal Injustice about the most egregious conduct of our courts and how justice is denied to so many people in this country. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Thursday and every Thursday for thorough and independent analysis of our criminal injustice system.
3: The giant Labour Party sale and clearance is now on. Hurry now, as we've got zero interest in our party. It's literally the lowest it's ever been. Give up on the common man and save today. That's right, we're getting rid of all of the Corbynites. Literally every single one. Being a Blairite has never been more in style. Only available at what should be the UK's biggest political party. The new new Labour Party. We're doing this
0: again. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees.
1: How brilliant was that? Well done, uh, Simon. Now, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf, as I said, is the president that the Americans deserve. Uh, but will never have. Instead, they have to choose uh, between Mutt and Jeff, between one of the two stooges. They have to pick uh, Oliver uh, Hardy or Stan Laurel. That's the contest that they have got ahead of them in November, is it any wonder uh, that the opposition base, which ought to be filled with enthusiasm and determination to remove A president who is almost daily uh, discovered to have been running off at the mouth in the most ugly way. And that's before you even touch on uh, the politics that he represents. He's now posing as an anti-war president, even though he hasn't removed any soldiers from any of the wars that he pledged to end when he was running as president and the democratic challenger would undoubtedly have taken America into more wars even than they are in at the minute. We'll have a great poll on that later. The United States, whilst collapsing at home, is throwing its weight around on the international stage like never before. Let's hear from the Oracle, Dr. Richard Wolf, who joins us now. Dr. Wolf, thank you for coming back Uh, on the show, you're a very, very popular guest indeed, uh, and rightly so. Uh, Let's uh, summarize the economic situation since. The last time we spoke, uh, we looked like we were looking over the edge of the abyss, and an apocalyptic uh, vision uh, was conjured uh, as to where the United States might be by the end of the year, whoever wins the presidency. Has that mitigated in any way or even got worse?
4: Well, I think it hasn't changed much. Uh, And if it has changed, it's really a kind of stretching out. Uh, Mr. Trump is doing all that he can to distract people by any and every means. You mentioned them correctly before, including foreign activities and throwing his weight around, scapegoating China or Iran or virtually anybody who he can think of that might appeal to that part of this country that follows him. Uh, But no, the economic situation is in fact a kind of slow-burning disaster. Let me give you two or three examples. Uh, Number one, for several months now, many millions of Americans, uh, homeowners, or people in apartments, have not paid their rent and have not paid their mortgage payments, which are normally due every month. Likewise, millions of our uh, businesses have also not paid their rent to the buildings in which they are located, to the malls in which they are situated, and so on. An explosion is building that will be an immense struggle between both the residential and commercial tenants on the one hand and the landlords on the other. And at the same time, the landlords, because they cannot collect rents, are not paying off the banks from whom they have borrowed money. Everyone is going into court to sue everyone else, and the level of pandemonium guarantees that no investments are going to be made in many, many areas, because the uncertainty compounds all of these problems, and then the uncertainty, by cutting off any kind of investment, slows any prospect of returning, quote unquote, to normal. And my last point would be, normal is no objective anyway, because it's the normal we had before all of this that now collapsed. Lost in the fudge of all of this was a lovely uh, factor which came to light since I last spoke with you. The National Bureau of Economic Research here in the United States, the official timekeeper for our economic ups and downs, of of capitalism's great instability, decided to announce that the current economic crash, because that's what it is, uh, started in February. And the reason this is interesting is that the pandemic, the virus, did not really get to the United States uh, in any significant way until March. Making it a bit of a bad joke to refer to this as the COVID-19 crash because clearly capitalism was crashing anyway, and the pandemic only made it that much worse.
1: It is extraordinary that the country they excoriate so savagely uh, is the only country that is actually forging ahead now. After having been the first to report and record and describe uh, the virus and send it around the world so everyone else could get ready for it, China, has bounced back. Other countries like Britain have had a a, a recovery in the third quarter. Uh, We'll see if that survives the news that seems to be coming this week, uh, that the spike of the second wave is well and truly among us. But China has powered ahead. Uh, So the, the country they can't stop hating on is the one that has done the best in dealing with the virus and avoiding economic catastrophe. That's what lies behind all this hostility towards China, isn't it?
4: That's part of it. It's an attempt to blame China. Mr. Trump uh, likes in his public speaking to refer to it as the China flu uh, and other phrases like that. Absolutely. China is being scapegoated here uh, for the pandemic, but also for the fact that somehow they are being accused now of cheating. I love the phrase, cheating. In other words, getting benefits from American corporations that can explain to the uh, shocked American people how much progress China has made in the last 30 years, during every which one of uh, those years, by the way. Economic growth in the United States over the last 30 years in case people don't know this, has been in the neighborhood of two to two and a half percent, and over the same period the Chinese economic growth has been between six and eight percent, which explains uh, why they're catching up, why they have surpassed the United States. But there is a fundamental issue here that shouldn't get lost. The United States has roughly four and a half percent of the world's population and we have well over 20% of all the COVID cases and all the COVID deaths in the world. For a very wealthy country that parades itself around as the most efficient, the most developed, the most industrialized, etc. What I just said is a colossal fact of failure in this society. Failure to prepare for the pandemic, and failure to contain it once it comes here. And the president is in desperate urgency to try to escape being blamed for the failure to prepare and the failure to contain. He is by no means the only reason for that failure, but he is certainly a major player in producing that failure. And much of the election uh, will hang on whether or not he is successful in dispersing the attention, focusing the media elsewhere, creating uh, pandemonium in the election process, which is a severe problem here, or or just redirecting attention away from the colossal mess uh, that he has now as the context for this election.
1: Now, the rats are uh, deserting uh, the ship Uh, in the hope of making it sink, it should be said. The people that he had around him, starting with John Bolton, but even members of his own family, and now uh, uh, the former defense uh, grandees uh, are uh, spilling the beans about his loose mouth. Uh, There's no reason to uh, doubt that he has a loose mouth, whether he said the things that they're saying he said and why they didn't tell us that at the time are, of course, moot questions. But these rats, are they having an effect? These people publishing books and releasing tapes, is that chipping away at his chances of success?
4: Well, I think the answer there, however frustrating, has to be yes and no. Uh, Here's the way, yes, for independent voters, for people who are still unsure about how they're gonna vote, which is, according to the polls, a relatively small number, Uh, these things no doubt will have an effect. For all those who don't like Mr. Trump, all of this is simply more and more evidence uh, of everything they had thought and believed now being uh, concretized. But the other part, the frustrating part of my answer is the depth of anger and bitterness Uh, In the American people, large sections of them, uh, if you had to get a number, I would say thirty, a third of the American people are so bitter about what has happened to them, this American dream that they were told about all their life, which is completely beyond anything they can afford at at this point. They're, they're disintegrating benefits that used to go with their jobs, but aren't there. Uh, all of these deprivations, the children's education, which is their only hope for a good job, which they cannot now afford without mountains of debt that they cannot repay. These situations have accumulated and made them angry and bitter. They don't want anything to do with either the conventional Republicans or the conventional Democrats. They voted for Mr. Trump because he acts unlike them. He is grotesque. He says what you're not supposed to say. He is crude and vulgar and hostile and divisive in all the ways that normal, polite politics in this country avoided. It's not that he isn't a normal Republican, he is, but he just says it very bluntly and very starkly. And that third of the people wants that. They want change, they really do. Not the fake change that Obama promised but did not deliver. Not the fake change that Mr. Biden weekly uh, repeats every day. But they really want something different. There was the irony that they were more interested in Bernie Sanders because he was clearly different by having the label socialist than they were in any other Democrat. And that was a parallel, if you like, to why they liked Mr. Trump. But because uh, Bernie was pushed out and you're left with a centrist like Mr. Biden, what you're left with is an inability to mobilize the anti-Trump while Mr. Trump uses his standard over-the-top rhetoric to mobilize his base, and that makes the outcome somewhat questionable.
1: Before we turn to uh, Biden, this third of the American people of whom you speak, uh, this is commonly described as Trump's base. It might be a little more than a third, probably not at all uh, more than 40, But that's a lot of people in a country the size of the United States. A lot of people with guns, as well as anger. This mess around the system, the process of the elections. This is pregnant with some pretty scary, hairy possibilities, isn't it? Of Trump refusing to uh, accept the result uh, of of, uh, Supreme Court, suits like we had uh, when Bush uh, triumphed over Gore, and maybe even violence on the streets uh, with all the uh, material that's around this question, that could be the spark, couldn't it?
4: Yes, it could. And I think Mr. Trump has uh, perfected a strategy he used in 2016 that he is using again. If I could explain it this way. he. Knows that the mass, the majority of the United States, including the majority of the employer class in our society, are distressed by his government, frightened by the fighting in the streets, which has already begun, frightened by the level of hostility and basic division in the society. They would like, therefore, to make Mr. Trump and all of that go away. But they're afraid, they're afraid that Mr. Trump will mobilize all of the disgruntled, angry, bitter people for some sort of desperate, uh, for example, refusal to accept the results of the election, or refusal to leave office, no matter what the results of the election, et cetera, et cetera, um, and to mobilize even more trouble in the streets, even more white supremacy in a society that is going to be majority non-white in a very few years. All of these are threats. He threatened that in the, in the 2016, he's threatening it again. His basic strategy is this, to go to the mass of the people who run the American society and say, yes, I'm dangerous, but I'm less dangerous if you cut a deal with me than I can be for you if you don't. And I think a good number of them are wobbling. They might prefer Mr. Biden. They almost certainly do. He's the calm, normal uh, government that has been so profitable for American big business for the last 30 years. But they're fearful that if they go to Biden, Mr. Trump may make good on unleashing the guns, the white supremacists, the bitter, angry uh, motorcycle gangs, the police that are upset because they're caught in an impossible position. And so he threatens to literally have a civil war And to avoid that, they may actually give him another
1: four years. Fascinating. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, Professor. Um, Joe Biden, you know I mean no disrespect at all to the American people uh, by asking this question this way. But it is simply incredible, literally incredible, uh, in the rest of the world, that a country as great as yours as mighty as yours, with the level of can-do and know-how and so on that your society has, that the best the political class could find to put up against this monster was Joe Biden. How should I explain that to people?
4: Well, I think you're gonna have to explain to people as I try to, that the greatness, the power, The capability, and you're very kind about it, and I think you're right about it, Uh, as an American I say that, but much of that is now in a fairly advanced stage of decline. I am not an alarmist, I have not said this before (laughs) in my life, but as I look at the level of difficulties this country has worked its way into, with the level of social problems Uh, that it has kicked down the road over decades and not solved and now confronts the explosion of the fires in the West which are like a metaphor for the failure to deal with global warming, the failure to heed the warnings for that, just as you fail to hear the warnings for pandemics, or that you fail to recognize that the capitalist system crashes every four to seven years, and that since the last one was in 2008, we were already overdue, and that if these things happen together, well, then it's too much. We all knew that. But this is a system frozen in the kind of old economic self-content, the old politics that articulates that, the normal Republicans and normal Democrats, that they continue to play their games as if the system around them was not falling apart. It reminds us here in America of what we have read about those moments when the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, or if I may, the British Empire, was going down the tubes, but the people running it acted as if nothing like that was happening, as if they could have the same uh, concerts and the same lavish dinners and the same cricket matches, and in this country, the same professional sports. But of course, we can't have professional sports because our professional athletes have refused to play because they understand the decline and are now expressing it. I think you're seeing the United States beginning That kind of disintegration that explains the absurdity of a Donald Trump on one extreme and the absurdity of coming up with nothing better than Joseph Biden on the other. It is a bizarre display of a society unable and unwilling to face the accumulated problems it has.
1: Apocalypse, if not now, then perhaps soon. Uh, Thank you for a rare, rare interview. Dr. Richard Wolf. thank you for joining us again on the mother of all talk shows. Wow, that interview deserves to spread far and wide in my view. Uh, Back to the poll. Why is Sir Keir Starmer not 20 points ahead in the polls? Uh, A, he's not human, 7%. B, he's dull. 39 percent, that's up three, by the way. See, he's Tony Blair without the laughs. That's on 54 percent, down three. Get voting on that now on my uh, Twitter handle, at George Galloway. Uh, now, thanks for watching tonight. You're part of, as I said, a truly massive global audience currently tuning in. But if you haven't already, please click share on Facebooks to tell your friends about the show, or retweet the live feed that you're watching on Twitter. Why don't you, please? Let's take the first call of the evening from Minneapolis, where the current wave first started. It's Michael. Michael, welcome back. Thanks a lot, George. How are you doing today? Uh, Very good, thanks.
5: wonderful to hear from you. Go ahead. So uh, it's sort of come down to me I, uh, to um, categorize the civil unrest in this country. And I'm sure, as you know, the entire West Coast is on fire. Yep. And these are unprecedented fires. The so 2.5 million acres have burned, which is 20 times more than burned last year, which was already a very large scale wildfire. Um, so what I'm looking forward to kind of in the, as this, you know, the country is li- both metaphorically and literally on fire, I'm looking forward to the next stage of social unrest. So I'm going to paint a little picture for you. Um, Donald Trump has frequently and has, has said that vote by mail is fraudulent, that it's riddled with problems, that people shouldn't do it. He's even you know, floated the idea that it should be banned, and he sort of ginned that up. So Republicans normally, historically, George, are the ones who vote by mail primarily. However, this year... Republicans are largely voting in person due to the encouragement of Donald Trump, and Democrats, all Democratic organizations, are encouraging people to vote by mail because of fears of, you know, the coronavirus. So, um, Hawkfish, which is a uh, which is a Bloomberg think tank, aggregated a bunch of polling data from 538 and some of their own. And what's going to happen on election night is looks like is that there's going to be a lot of Democrats who vote by mail. And most Republicans are going to vote in person. So the projection is that it's going to look on election night as if Donald Trump won, not just a victory, but potentially looks like he won a landslide victory. However, once all the ballots are counted, um, there's a good chance that will swing the other way. And right now, the election, it looks like if it were held today, Joe Biden would likely win, although it would probably be fairly close. so we 're potentially facing a scenario where both sides will be declaring victory, and their, and their uh, allies have already started to signal that that 's what they 're going to do. Hillary Clinton came out last week and said that Joe Biden should, in no instance even consider conceding on election night or in the days after. And you know, Hillary famously herself conceded on election night. So if you think the unrest in the United States is terrible now, and it is, the greatest since the 60s and possibly the 30s, imagine what it's going to look like. Oh, and I'll also tell you that in New York, at times it took, I think, six weeks to count some of the primary ballots. So we don't know how long the counting of the votes could take with with a massive mail-in voting that the United States hasn't seen before in recent memory. So we're looking at a situation where both sides will probably will be declaring victory in the days, weeks, potentially even months after the election. And I think that that's going to absolutely explode onto the streets. And what we've seen so far is nothing compared to what could potentially happen then.
1: Well, I'm not going to add to that, Michael, because I, I couldn't. Uh, that is, in a nutshell, a perfect representation of the storm that may just be around the corner. So I'll leave it at that. You're the first call, but you're the best call. And I'll be surprised if we get a better one. Thank you very much indeed. Now uh, the trial of the century, although it's not a trial, it's an extradition hearing uh, in the Old Bailey started out this week in tragedy and ended in farce. I refer, of course, uh, to the incarceration and the attempted crucifixion of the world historic journalist and publisher Julian Assange. Earlier I did a short for RT on this subject. Take a look now. This phase at least of the trial of the century, the lynching of Julian Assange started out in tragedy but ended in farce. the tragedy was the council for the british government acting on behalf of the united states government claiming that julian assange was not actually a journalist even though he's won numerous prizes around the world for his journalism is a member of the national union of journalists is supported by all international associations of journalism and his journalism has been published in all of the major titles across the world. The second tragedy was the same hapless British council claiming that this was nothing to do with war crimes. Oh no, it wasn't Julian Assange's war files which dropped on a hitherto ignorant public the true facts about the war crimes being carried out in their name on their dollar by their government in wars around the world. The farce was that the whole show had to be abandoned, postponed, because the partner of one of the American lawyers in the court may have symptoms of the coronavirus. So it's all right for Julian Assange to languish in Belmarsh prison for a year and a half with the coronavirus swirling all around him cutting down people left and right, staff and inmates but just one partner of just one lawyer in the Old Bailey brings the whole show to a juddering halt. The facts are these, Julian Assange is the greatest journalist and publisher of our age. His name is already written in the stars, enshrined in history forevermore, an icon A giant compared uh, to the dwarves, moral dwarves, professional dwarves, who've either ignored this case, even up to this point, or have actively assigned their pens to the case for the prosecution. Out of jealousy and hatred, they have fashioned a noose for their own necks. Because it's Julian Assange today, it's about war crimes today, But tomorrow, the United States government could seek the extradition of any British journalist for any story or series of stories that the United States government did not allow. Of course, the US government and its British hirelings in the Old Bailey have to argue that this is not about war crimes, it's not about politics at all, because... If it were about politics, if it were about war crimes, Julian Assange could not be extradited because it says on the face of the extradition bill, which I opposed in the House of Commons, a bill that passed and is now a treaty, it says on the face of it, and I was assured personally by the man who wrote it, the then Home Secretary David Blunkett in Tony Blair's government, that no political prisoner could ever be extradited to the United States on political charges. So they have to pretend, I don't know, it's about some traffic violation somewhere that Julian Assange may have been involved in. They have to pretend it's about uh, the password to the computers of an Icelandic bank or something equally outlandish but it's not about that and every sentient being in the court and anyone paying attention in the land already knows it's because Julian Assange revealed the vicious earth-shaking war crimes committed by the British and American governments in Afghanistan and in Iraq and actually in many places since it is about the right of the public to know what's being done in their name. After all, it's being done under their flag and they are paying for it. Now, most students of journalism can easily recognise exactly what this is all about. It's the power of the powerful forbidding others to learn of the crimes that they commit. Imagine the criminals. Have made it a criminal offense to report on their crimes. If this is upheld in the old bailey, then the old lady is surely in disgrace forever.
0: Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view.
1: By all means, uh, let me know what you think of that and of the Assange story. In general, you can call us from the UK on 02077 982 255 or from the United States on 001 744 4480 or tweet us at George Galloway at RTUK News. Now, Bob Wiley has produced, I think, the book of the year. He's the author of Bandit Capitalism, Carillion, and the corruption of the British state. When he started out writing it, he may have thought it was an historical work, looking back at uh, one of the biggest scandals in British capitalism in many decades. But actually, as we slump deeper and deeper into crisis, we are seeing shafts of light which illuminate the extent to which that corruption is still with us and I referred to some of it earlier in relation to the gigantic contracts of a hundred billion pounds and more that have been handed out to friends of the government. Capitalist companies with no track record at all in the business that they were being handed and certainly no performance related pay. That corruption of the British state is still with us, even if Carillion is not. Bob Wiley, a veteran journalist and broadcaster, joins me now. Bob, uh, welcome to the show. I must say you've come on since we wrote a book together 30 years ago. This is a corker, I must say. I wish I had more time uh, to go through it in more detail with you. But I want to start with the prologue which, to my surprise, uh, went into great detail about the Russian oligarchs, the formation of that oligarch class.
6: What has that got to do with the collapse of Karelia? Well, George, you know, and and a lot of people know now, that the Russian oligarchs looted the Russian state. They bought up the Russian mineral mountains, the oil, the massive oil and gas reserves. But the problem for the Russian economy was that they paid in millions, and a matter of a year or so later, their holdings were worth billions. So the Russian oligarchs, as they became known, have looted the Russian state and became unimaginably rich doing so, and they're now unaccountable and untouchable, but they've got British cousins, you see. They've got British cousins who are the British oligarchs. People like the heads of Carillion, who might be called the Carillionaires, they are equally living proof of the looting of the British state. These are the heads collectively of huge companies in Britain, which have got rich in gigantic privatization rackets and ripped off the public in rip-off contracts for all sorts of government business. So Kirillian, the book is titled Bandit Capitalism, that's the right name for it. So that's why it's called Bandit Capitalism. It's about the British oligarchs and their bandit capitalism.
1: It's, uh, it's a truly brilliant and a wonderful cover and uh, full marks to the GMB Trade Union for uh, their help uh, in getting this book uh, to the market. So remind us what happened with Carillion. This was a five billion a year company that finished with 29 million in the bank, but seven billion pounds worth of debts. Has anyone gone to jail for this,
6: Bob? Oh, um, no, not yet, George. There is no real calling to account at any level of those who have stood at the top of Carillion. In fact, come January next year, it's three years since the Carillion collapse, and not a single director has been held to account. The regulators have implemented one, two, three, four inquiries. The Insolvency Service actually had a fast-track inquiry. They haven't reported. And in fact, when I asked them why they hadn't the other day, they said, don't you understand? By legal positions, we've got three years to report. So, so far, George, nobody has been held to account. Nobody has been held to account for Carillion developing like a giant Ponzi scheme on the never never. Jesus.
1: Explain that. Explain that, Bob. It's a very serious charge and your lawyers uh, let you make it uh, so you can back it up. A Ponzi scheme is a criminal enterprise.
6: Well, I use Ponzi scheme as a, as a, a way of describing how Carillion developed. Let, let me try and give you an explainer. Let's take Mr. and Mrs. Smith, who live in London. They are outgoings in their household have over a period in time become much more than their earning in wages. So they start to plug the gap with credit cards. So they live a higher lifestyle than they can afford by plugging the gap that they've got in income over expenditure by using the visa. And then when that visa dies, they can't pay that visa They get another card at a higher interest and they're paying that off. In the end, they can't pay the bills. And that's what happened to Carillion. They ran their company almost like a household, thinking that you could count the amount of money on your visa as income. Carillion, at one stage five, sorry, in 2009, Carillion had loans worth 200 million. By the time it went down the Swanee, the loans were 1.3 billion. So, assets hardly grew in the same period. And at the end of the day, like any Ponzi scheme, Carillion came to an end. Never Neverland didn't work. What was the impact, the wreckage, that the collapse of Carillion left? Well, <laughs> I mean, obviously, from, from the work go, there were thousands of workers who lost their jobs. But the real, the, the real heavy, heavy hit was taken by Karelian suppliers. 30,000 businesses, small businesses in the main, who supplied the Karelian construction and services effort, 30,000 were left out to the tune of two billion pounds. Many of these businesses went bust, they went to the wall, they weren't paid. The directors walked away counting their money, and small businesses were left with two billion pounds worth of bills that were never paid. The other element in a, in a you know, this earth-shattering uh, crime in business terms in Britain, the other element is that while the, the directors had private pension schemes, the top man, uh, Richard Housen and Richard Adam, the finance organiser, in five years had £1.8 million paid into the pension schemes, between the two of them, £1.8 million, while they allowed the deficit on the pension fund for the workers to go to £990 million. Now the government had to step in in the pension fund, and that's cost the taxpayer 2.6 billion in terms of how how to make restitution, but the pensioners at Carillion, the workers, their pensions have gone down by 10% overnight. Now, they
1: always say that lessons will be learned. Have uh, lessons been learned,
6: or is there another Carillion round the corner? Well, there is another Carillion round the corner, and many other Carillians round the corner. Um, in March of last year, Interserve, which is another of these construction and services companies, they uh, they went into administration, on the verge of bankruptcy. Funnily enough, Carillion like there was debts of 750 million and a hole in the books of 100 million. Now, in the very year when those accounts were delivered, the same accounts show that the two directors at the top of InterServe were paid 1.3 million pounds between them, and for good luck, and services to mankind and humankind, the bonuses in top were 656,000. So, please- nice Let's work if you can get it. So-
1: Let me ask you a question, maybe you can answer it, maybe beyond the purview uh, of your book. Where are the auditors, these great auditing firms, owning skyscrapers all over London? Where are these auditors? In these kind of stories,
6: George, it, it is a story which you couldn't make up. The big four auditors, as you know, are KPMG, Deloitte, Price Waterhouse, and Ernst and Young, and they've got their fingerprints all over the Karelian story. Let me give you one picture. Picture it, if you like. KPMG were Karelian's auditors. For 19 years, and they were paid £19 million for their trouble. In the 19 years, they never ever issued a single audit with a complaint. It was always tick the box, tickety boo, all these accounts are fair, accurate, and we approve them. KPMG approved the Carillion accounts in March of 2017, and three months later, three months later, a whole of 845 million pounds was discovered in the books, 845 million, I mean George that doesn't just fall off the table, (laughs) or they said nobody could see it coming, well I'll tell you, if you thought about, you know the old thing about the, the three monkeys? Well, for the big four, the three monkeys are hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, and it's nothing to do with us, (laughs) gov. Brilliant, Bobby. Uh, How do people get the book? Um, Well, in the British context, it's www.berlin, which is the publisher, b-i-r-l-i-n-n.co.uk, And in the Eastern seaboard of America, where I hear you've got many, many listeners and fans, George, they can get it in any outlet of Barnes and Noble. Fantastic. Bob
1: Wiley, congratulations. You've done a service uh, to humanity by producing this book. Much obliged uh, to you. Uh, Now, let me read some uh, comments before we go to the break. In response to the poll, Nick says he's the leader that Labour doesn't want, selling policies that he doesn't want to an electorate that doesn't want him. And Tom says he leads half a party, the half guilty of treason within the party, and the voters know it. And Gordon says he's irrelevant, is why, George, as is the party he leads. And Stephen says he's socialist-distanced himself. And by email... Jim says, I've always been of the view that Jesse Ventura will never run. And the reason is simple. He knows better than anyone that once he gets within spitting distance of the White House, he's a dead man. Nestor from Maryland spelled it out last Sunday. U.S. presidents are puppets for the deep state, and they do as they are told. They always have, and John F. Kennedy is the perfect example of what happens when you tell them to go to hell. Jesse will not run. I'm sure of it. Well, I don't know if Jesse will in the end run. Uh, We'll hear maybe from his supporters in the course of the evening. But I've got to tell you, if there's one man I know who ain't no coward, bruv, it's Governor Jesse Ventura. And on Facebook, Danny says, be careful from midnight tonight. If you're caught in a group bigger than seven, the virus is about. And Eduardo says, the virus can count now Wow smart virus. And Maya says, people can't get a test because the Tories are closing centers. They don't want to pay for It's obvious. And on YouTube, Ali says, if we locked everything down and kept people in their homes for three weeks, we could have got a handle on it. Instead, we squabble while Rome burns. And Richard says, you'd think that by now, George, would find out what Twitch is. I'll be back. after the break call me come and have a go if you think you're hard enough don't bring up a false name come on air call me and let's have this matter out Mm, let's get ready to
7: How, how have I you got
1: the nerve to tell people to Brexit if you have not? If you're not but, telling them, the repercussion. N- that's 2016's argument, Michael. I'm no longer arguing with you about the merits of Brexit. I'm arguing with you about democracy, about the right of the majority to have their decision, their vote implemented. This match will get red
7: hot. Not have a referendum, no, let them have I, a referendum, let them sort it out amongst
1: themselves. Because I want a referendum, Robert, I want sir. a referendum. Let me put that in capital letters. If you think this year of 2020, which is shaping up already to be an annus miserabilis for the SNP, if you think this is your year, go ahead, come on, let's have it out. It's on.
4: But look, look, George, it's not as simple as that. Right. Have you seen the documentary about Cambridge Analytica and the people oh. who work there? Have you looked at the I global... I know nothing about that.
1: I'm not interested but, in but them. Precisely, but, but because inter- you don't I'm know not, about them... I'm not interested in them, Bruce, because it's all a red herring, just like Russiagate was a red but, but, herring. you up! Do you only want to hear voices that agree with you? Because if you do, you're not clever enough to be at this open university of the airwaves. In fact, you need to go back to Remedial and learn something about what democracy and freedom of speech actually mean.
0: George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge where there are no tuition fees.
1: Now, uh, following the uh, frankly ridiculous election results that were declared in Belarus where the long-standing, long, 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 long long-standing president uh, apparently returned a vote of more than 80 percent. Widespread disorder broke out in the capital, Minsk. Uh, The Western countries who preyed on similar situations elsewhere uh, tried to crank it up into yet another color revolution. Not because they care at all about the people of Belarus, they almost certainly couldn't even identify its place on the map, but because they know uh, that it has a border with Russia, and it is the policy of the NATO countries uh, to park their tanks as close as possible to the Moscow uh, government's lawn, uh, they moved in immediately let's hear how that's all going from Mark Sleboda, who is an international relations Expert and a security analyst who joins us from Moscow mark Welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows first of all uh, paint a picture of how the situation is In Belarus is it uh, escalating? declining is it? Uh, a real existential threat uh, to the president. Give us a story.
8: Hi George, thanks for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you. Um, In Minsk right now, the situation is kind of at a impasse, a a status quo, where uh, it's not easy to see how it will change either way uh, towards uh, the embattled uh, president or, or um, uh, supposed president, Alexander Lushenko, or the protest movement, which is still gathering crowds uh, once a week at least of uh, and around 100,000 people or close to it on the streets of the capital and smaller protests, uh, but significant in other areas of the country. Um, there was uh, about a month ago. Uh, the protest movement was gathering steam, and it was joined by calls for a nationwide strike. And some strikes did break out uh, at companies, including state companies, which is really important because state companies and more importantly their employees, state company workers, uh, which are the majority of of jobs in the Belarus uh, in in Belarus. Um, uh, they are Lukashenko's core, his base. So a potential strikes from that sector against him in support of the protesters would indeed be very serious. But those strikes have almost uh, entirely petered out at this point. The protests have lost a little bit of steam but are still gathering firm numbers. But the police, the military, the security services, um, all of that, uh, which is, is vital, the vital organs of the state are still uh, completely loyal, no cracks at all. And, and without cracks there or within uh, Belarus's rather tame parliament, it is uh, really hard to see that no matter the declarations of Lithuania and other countries in a John Guido-like faction, claiming that another candidate who was on the ballot of what is generally regarded to be a fraudulent election, uh, not accepted, uh, is certainly not in the West, um, and and treated with a high degree of skepticism in Russia. In the the words of the Russian foreign minister, Lavrov, they called it less than perfect. But uh, without some change on one of these grounds, it's difficult to see how the protesters could further uh, shake power in Belarus. Uh, It's kind of at an impasse and and, uh, uh, things have been status quo for about the last two weeks. Uh, Lukashenko is due to arrive in uh, Russia, in Sochi, tomorrow to speak to Putin, um, where uh, uh, Russia's support, uh, Russia, the the Russian government, Putin, does not love Lukashenko. But right now they probably see him as, as the best of bad options and are hoping to use his weakened position to further integration of the already existing russian Belarusian Union state, which he has been dragging his feet on and, and flirting with the West for several years now. Yeah, well, it's only
1: recently that Mike Pompeo was there. They used to call him the last dictator in, uh, in Europe, uh, but they were... Uh Uh, making uh, big eyes at him uh, when uh, Pompeo was there. They obviously hoped uh, to poach him without the need for uh, a color uh, revolution. I'll come back to the Russian stand in a minute, but I wanted to ask you if you thought the opposition had been damaged uh, by the, you put it as well as I could, the Juan guaido uh, Isaiah Uh, of the opposition uh, leader, or the leading candidate, at least. Um, Were they damaged? Did they look as if they were tools uh, of uh, NATO uh, and uh, those who wished uh, Russia ill rather than people who wished Belarus well?
8: Yeah, well, the leader of the protest movement uh, de facto right now, Svetlana Tihanovskaya. She's a housewife, uh, the wife of a liberal blogger who was originally on the ballot, um, but was removed and imprisoned. And there were also two much... uh, establishment pro-Russia opposition candidates on the the ballot who had much more popular support at that time. Uh, Viktor Babariko, who was the head of Gabon Bank uh, in Belarus, and um, uh, Valery Stepkalo, um, who was uh, once Belarus's ambassador to the United States. Um, they were seen as largely pro-Russian figures, and they were wiped off the ballot. And that really restricted Russia's room of maneuver with this selection. It was kind of a clever play by Lukashenko. Um, so the only one left on the ballot of any real significance uh, to oppose him was this... this housewife, uh, Tihanovskaya, and the opposition coalesced around her, mostly for the purposes of seeing Lukashenko out of power. Um, and uh, She has set up a shadow government out of the EU, out of Lithuania at this point. And Lithuania, at least, has recognized her. Uh, as the president-elect of Belarus, how so? If the election was fraudulent, how another candidate on it can then claim to be president? I'm not quite sure. Um, but she has since she's spoken with the EU Parliament. She uh, spoken to them directly. She has uh, done uh, photo ops with Bernard Henry Levy. She has had meetings with the U.S. State Department. Uh, a, a deputy. Uh, of the U.S. Department, Deputy Secretary of State, and the Kremlin views all of this sudden as uh, uh, well. We 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 can't allow her to take power. We can't allow these protests, which are largely not anti-Russian, pro-Russian. They're more about internal matters of Belarus, and uh, Belarus doesn't have the same large number of. Anti-Russian national identity politics, as West Ukraine did. So these protests are different. They are largely peaceful uh, on the protester side. They're not uh, overtly violent, um, and you don't have this big nationalist movement that's a part of it. It exists, but it's much smaller. Um, but um, the Kremlin sees the leaders of the opposition, sky uh, and the others around basically operating out of the EU with their blessing and support, says that, that whatever they say to the contrary, that they want to hijack these protests and use it to geopolitically uh, flip Belarus in, into the Western camp. And that's certainly what the West wants, uh, what the US, the EU wants and is pushing for out of this situation. That's why Russia is kind of... Um, Gritting their teeth and making do with Lukashenko for the moment they 've offered him rather tepid support while basically setting terms demanding further integration with the union state. The, the protest movement i don 't think that those who have been actively involved will be that dismayed uh, uh, by uh, you know this this development, this linkage. Um, uh, John Guido style, uh, with the EU, uh, Lithuania declaring their own president of Belarus, but it may alienate other portions of the Belarusian population that were sitting on the fence. uh, Not really getting tired of Lukashenko after 26 years, but not wanting to become a, a NATO anti-Russian state uh, in the process either. Uh, We'll have to see how uh, opinion polls, uh, there aren't any direct ones, but we should get uh, some idea of uh, how support might change because of that and what comes out of this meeting between Lukashenko and Putin tomorrow in the coming weeks.
1: I thought that uh, President Putin was remarkably insouciant about the whole thing. and. Russia was taking uh, really rather a risk uh, by its hands-off uh, approach uh, to it in the early days, weeks uh, of this uh, process. But as you describe it, uh, it would appear to be another example of, of, uh, of Putin's sagacity. Uh, he has not dirtied his hands uh, by uh, embracing uh, Lukashenko's in my opinion, bogus election victory, but neither has the situation gotten so out of control that Belarus becomes another Ukraine.
8: That's certainly the attention. It's a fine balance, and the Kremlin is rather good in such foreign policy situations of sitting back and doing nothing sometimes doing nothing is worse, or is better than doing something, as, as the US and the EU constantly feel the need to meddle and invert themselves. Uh, the Russian government's position is what's happening in Belarus is a domestic matter. Uh, there is a union state between the two of them. A lot of people ignore that. You don't need a visa to go back and forth, right? Um, uh, you can reside in either country, there's no customs uh, or duties. Um, uh, at the border between the two countries, and it was envisioned to grow much more into an EU-type thing. Uh, Lukashenko's been dragging his feet. But that said, Russia doesn't believe that it should insert itself into other countries' domestic politics like this they've got a number of allies in the Eurasian Union the collective Security treaty organization the Commonwealth of Independent States that if Russia was seen to be ushering Lukashenko out under whatever circumstances they might get nervous and be uh, and kind of shy away from these organizations with Russia because uh, of, of some lingering fears of of, of Russian imperial dictating their own internal politics and putting themselves at risk. Russia doesn't want that. So unlike the US and the EU, it's constantly meddle, they like to keep a standoff approach. The Central Election Commission of Belarus, the organs of state power, have declared that Lukashenko is the president. Uh, if you say so, uh, we're not really in a position to question that. Uh, but they will not allow violent street protests to emerge backed by the West, as they were in Ukraine, which topples the government into a street revolution type situation where there could be a dramatic geopolitical flipping. Uh, So I think that what we'll see uh, in Sochi out of these meetings with Lukashenko is that Putin will hold Lukashenko to his um, statement that that he would see Belarus through a gradual transformation of power, a reform, particularly of constitutional reform that'll reduce the powers of the president's office and give more power to the parliament in other areas, were pro-Russian popular sentiment uh, and political forces uh, within... Within the parliament, within civil society, could exert greater influence over Lukashenko and hold him to any deals he might make with Putin while he's feeling weak right now. But uh, you know, Russia is playing a risk here because they are risk the government, the Russian government, the Kremlin is risking alienating uh, a what is undoubtedly a large segment of the Belarusian population, justifiably outraged at at the fraudulent uh, election. And he doesn't want to drive them completely uh, into the West's camp by being seen as supporting Lukashenko too much or without any caveats.
1: Marks Labrador, thanks very much indeed for that tour de force. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. A 60-second break, that's all. Stay tuned.
5: Radio Sputnik.
3: You know, I had uh, that George Galloway back in here the other day. Well, I'll tell you what. Talk about the knowledge. By the time he got out, I had a first-class degree.
0: We are talking... <laughs> 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold.
3: It's for you, sir.
9: Where's the cheese pizza, Robinson? Come on, what are the public paying you for? Oh, and, uh, got another virgin collado while you're there. There's a good chap. Now, who's ringing the old, uh, burner phone? Hello? How did you get this number, Elaine? No, 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 that's impossible. I, I can't possibly fly to New York. Why? Uh, our mummy's grounded me. Oh, yes. She's starting to cut off my allowance, you know. Yes, yes, I I know it comes from the public, but uh, she holds the strings. Oh, I've uh, got to go. Uh, My my pizza will be here uh, any minute. I'm not sweating, you're sweating. Elaine, don't call again. Robinson? Sir? Come here with that moist towelette. It's getting a bit hot for my liking.
0: George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees.
1: So this is the spot where I look back in history at the events that happened in this week. It was on this day in 1993, the Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, and the PLO leader, Yasser Arafat, shook hands on the White House lawn in Washington. It was, of course, meant to signal an historic peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. We know how that turned out. Two years later, Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated by right-wing Israeli terrorists. It was on the same day, this day, in 2001, that a relatively unknown former soldier and standard-bearer of the Tory right was elected the new leader of the Conservative Party. Now I know you have absolutely no idea who I'm talking about. I know that he's the most forgettable of all Tory leaders. His name was Ian Duncan Smith and he won 61% of the votes, beating his rival Kenneth Clark in a ballot of over 300,000 Tory members. He was ousted after narrowly failing to win the backing of enough MPs in a vote of confidence on the 29th of October, 2003. He's still around though, and it was this week when the former movie star Grace Kelly, now Princess Grace of Monaco, died in 1982 from injuries she sustained in a car crash near Monte Carlo. Amazing how many princesses die in car crashes. Uh, On the 14th of September in 1985, The then USSR expelled 25 people in a tit-for-tat spy row two days after the British government ordered the expulsion of 25 alleged Soviet spies. It followed the defection of the Soviet double agent and KGB chief Oleg Gordievsky to the West. Gordievsky gave British security services an unprecedented amount of information about Soviet agents operating in the UK. He had recently been appointed head of the KGB in London in charge of the USSR's whole spy operation in Britain. But he'd been a double agent for more than 20 years. On the 15th of September, 1940, was the then Prime Minister Winston Churchill called our finest hour. RAF Fighter Command claimed victory over the Luftwaffe after a day of heavy bombing raids ended in big losses for the enemy in the Battle of Britain. According to the RAF, 176 enemy aircraft were destroyed by fighters. At least another nine aircraft were hit by anti-aircraft guns. British casualties were much lighter, only 25 aircraft lost with 13 pilots killed or missing. Two days later it became clear that Hitler had indefinitely postponed Operation Sea Lion, his plan to invade Britain. Now uh, you may be interested in my counterfactual novel of that period uh, which is called Queensway and you can get a signed and dedicated copy directly from me at georgegalloway.com or you can get it just signed but without the dedication from Amazon and I think other platforms too. The it's a series. The second uh, I will finish writing in October and hope to have on the market shortly thereafter. In 1977, on the 16th of the month, pop star Mark Bolan was killed in a car crash in Southwest London. The 29-year-old former T. Rex singer, famous for songs like "Children of the Revolution." was killed instantly when the car being driven by his girlfriend, Gloria Jones, left the road and hit a tree in Barnes. A tree I've passed many, many times, having been quite a fan uh, from the earliest days of the work of Mark Bolan. A bit like Anne Sarkoulis in the Harry Dunn case, Gloria Jones left the country and did not return to face trial. I didn't know that. I wonder if you did. A year later, in 1978, an earthquake measuring 7.7 on the Richter scale hit southeast Iran, demolishing a major city and dozens of surrounding villages. More than 26,000 people died. And in 1992, the United Kingdom crashed out of the ERM, the Tory government suspending Britain's membership of the European exchange rate mechanism. Britain had tried all day to prop up a failing pound and withdrawal from the monetary system the country joined two years before was the last resort. Chancellor Norman Lamont raised interest rates from 10% to 12% then to 15% and authorised the spending of billions of pounds to buy up the sterling that was being frantically sold on the currency markets. All of it entirely fruitlessly. Although those numbers which seemed enormous at the time pale into insignificance with the kind of numbers that we talk about today. I remember that uh, moment uh, very well. I was a trade union sponsored member of parliament sponsored by the Transport and General Workers Union and we had a room in parliament no more. Uh, How could a trade union room uh, possibly survive in today's Parliament there are no trade unionists left in it, but in those days. It was a room where former miners and dockers and industrial workers uh, and Including me as a former industrial worker used to repair uh, to put our feet up uh, After a hard day, and I had fallen asleep Uh, And I remember I was wearing braces. I had my braces down Suspenders they call them in the US Uh, And uh, the attendant came in with the uh, latest edition of the Evening Standard, the London Evening Paper, and he shook me awake, which uh, they wouldn't normally do. And he said the Chancellor's about to make an important statement in the House. You probably want to be in there. He told me that interest rates had gone up to 15% and the country was, well, I'll not use his word because it was profane, but in deep trouble if you get my drift. So I quickly pulled up my braces, put on my jacket and got into the chamber just as the hapless Norman Lamont was announcing uh, the suspension of Britain in the ERM. That suspension paved the way for our refusal to join the Euro when all around us did. That was a very good choice, a very good decision indeed. Anyway, back to the week that was, on the 17th of September 1982 more than 3,000 people were killed during a 24-hour rampage by Lebanese right-wing militia in West Beirut. The Christian Falangist group, the clue was in the name, murdered entire families in cold blood in the Palestinian refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila. The massacre was apparently revenge for the assassination. Not by Palestinians, four days ago, uh, four days late, uh, earlier, of the Christian president elect Bashir Jamal. I was actually in Dublin, in O'Connell Street, on the top of a lorry uh, when the news broke of the massacres of Sabra and Shatila. I was there to address a meeting on the Palestine uh, question. Uh, the then Defence Minister, Ariel Sharon, resigned after being heavily criticised by the Kahan Commission set up by Israel for failing to prevent the massacres. But it didn't stop him being elected Prime Minister of Israel in February 2001. And on the 18th of this month in 1970, the legendary guitarist Jimi Hendrix died after collapsing at a party in London. A number of sleeping pills were found at the house in Notting Hill Gate Hendrix, aged just 27, my goodness, was born in Seattle, Washington, but rose to fame in Britain with his band, The Jimi Hendrix Experience. In 2003, a survey by Rolling Stone magazine named him the greatest guitarist in rock history. I don't agree with that. Uh, another does Hank Marvin. On that same day, in 1972, the first Ugandan refugees fleeing the persecution of the country's British-backed military dictatorship arrived in Britain. The 55,000 strong Asian community were ordered in August to leave the country within 90 days by the president, Idi Amin. 193 refugees landed at 9.30 a.m. at Stansted Airport in Essex, the first of hundreds of flights that carried out the evacuation. There were many objections to their arrival in the UK. Leicester Council even took out newspaper advertisements warning them not to come to the city, seeking jobs and homes. Actually, they've been probably the most successful immigrant community that ever arrived in Britain. So that was the good, the bad, and the frankly ugly. That was the week. That was, let's take a call from Mike in the Bahamas. How could we resist? Mike, go ahead, sir. Hey, George, how are you? Good, thank you, I wish I was in the Bahamas.
10: Yeah, it's nice here. Um, anyway, it was funny you mentioned Mark Boland. I lived in Roehampton for two years and used oh, yeah. to drive by the place where he got killed yeah. all I frequently. Never
1: knew, I never knew that his girlfriend, the driver, uh, fled the country and never faced trial. I didn't know that amazing. Uh, either. amazing, amazing. Uh,
10: Anyway, that's not why I called. Um, And um, my home state in the U.S. is Florida. And um, the state constitution was amended in 2018 to restore voting rights to uh, ex-felons. And these are people who will probably vote Democrat. And what happened was Governor DeSantis changed change the law that they have to pay their outstanding fines and court costs before they get their voting rights restored. So that essentially amounts to a poll tax, which is illegal in the U.S. It's unconstitutional. Mm. So what they uh, did, uh, federal court overruled it, but now on appeals last week it was uh, overruled again, and. DeSantis' decision stands. this is going to push Florida republican if it what if number, it's not changed what number of voters
1: uh, do you think we're talking about there Mike
10: We're talking about at least the tens of thousands, but Florida is even though it's such a big state, it's razor thin yeah florida you you can't afford to throw out maybe fifty thousand votes, who knows
1: That was the key battleground, of course, between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Yes, uh, I actually. It's where the. It's where George Bush stole the presidency.
10: Yes, and this could be. um, You know, as Florida goes, and usually the the election goes. So So you'd
1: call you'd call Florida for Trump at this stage.
10: If this ruling stands, yes, it's um, Mm -hmm. so marginal. Who
1: could overturn it, Mike? Mike, are you there? Yes. Yeah. Who could overturn that if the Supreme Court uh, has done it? It wasn't
10: the Supreme Court; it ah. was federal court.
1: Oh, Okay. Sorry. Uh, so, is there time uh, for this if to go be, to the Supreme Court?
10: I doubt it. You know, it, it can take years to go to the Supreme Court.
1: That is a very interesting piece of information, Mike, and I'm grateful for and, your bringing and, it to us. Yeah, that. And
10: I just think Trump's going to take it before the election even happens if this stands. That's all I needed to say.
1: No, it's a very succinctly put. Thanks very much for that. Jim is in Colorado on Assange. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, George.
11: Uh, I agree with Mike, too. I've been following the Florida, even from up here in Colorado. That's, that state is just crooked from top to bottom. <laughs> but anyhow, mm. on, on Assange, I'm wondering if we've gone to this part in the extradition. Yeah, I know the death penalty is off the table based on uh, EU law and UK law, he wouldn't extra anybody who faces a death penalty. But uh, is anybody going to bring up the matter it's, he needs to be guaranteed a civilian trial in a civilian court?
1: No, and because, he, isn't, he, uh, he isn't going to be, as you know, I think. Uh, he's going to be held in special measures, uh, neither he nor his lawyers will be allowed to speak to the public during any trial. He'll be held in a Supermax, uh, Guantanamo Bay, uh, internal Guantanamo Bay. Uh, and although you can't uh, give him the death penalty, uh, that doesn't mean you won't kill him in prison. And the state of his health is such, it probably won't take long to kill him in prison, Jim.
11: Yeah, and is, is there any laws regarding um the state of a person's health to send him on this overseas uh, trip?
1: Um, you know, could yeah, someone
11: rule he's not that, fit to travel? Yeah, you know. the
1: judge, uh, the judge uh, could rule that, and that is one of the uh, points that the defense is making uh, in the case. But uh, so far, at least, it's all fallen on stony ground. As I said in the short earlier, uh, Julian's being held in a maximum security prison where terrorists and mass murderers are held, uh, which is a sink of coronavirus, uh, cutting down prisoners and inmates in large numbers. Uh, and he's been held there for a year and a half, even though he is not actually, at this point, uh, a convicted man.
11: Yeah, I, I don't know, don't they, have, uh, don't they have prisons for people who've been arrested but not, not convicted in England, I would think they did. You you would (laughs) not normally,
1: except on very serious crimes uh, or violence, uh, usually, uh, be held on remand in Belmarsh Prison. In fact, I'm not sure, other than a terrorist case or a murder case, that there's ever been anyone held there on remand, while still an innocent man. Boy, they're really afraid of this guy, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Jim, thanks for the call, my friend. I appreciate it. I've got to go to Brazil. Samuel is in Sao Paulo. Samuel, welcome to the show.
12: Uh, hi, George. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, I'd like just to, to point out, because uh, last week uh, you were talking to some the the is called Walter, and he talked about the controlled demolition of the twin towers and the World Trade Center building 7. Yes. The interesting thing is uh, you both ended up missing the point. Uh, The controlled demolition is now a scientifically uh, incontrovertible fact.
1: Of of which building? Building 7 or all three buildings? The three buildings. The three no, buildings. I'm, I'm the afraid building that's that you're talking through your hat, Samuel. What do you mean well, scientifically incontrovertible?
12: Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, just uh, you get it. So, before anything, a suggestion: invite Doctor Richard Gage. He's the founder of the Engineers and Architects for the Truth of 9/11. Uh, they are, uh, by the way, in two hours a third day of their con- uh, event. Uh, discussing it and invite him, he will show you much better than me. It is an undisputable fact. And the thing is, uh, this is important thing. We if don't it have... was
1: an undisputable fact, we'd be in quite different territory. the The fact is, it is h- a highly disputed contention. Wait, George, just just
12: just a second. And uh, this, uh, uh, if, if invite him, and
1: show... Oh, we'll show. What's his name? Uh, Richard Gage. It's Richard Gates. I promise you, we'll invite him. That's a promise. Uh, in two hours. That's in two a promise. Two hours, That's... They are beginning, they're beginning the third day of, it, of the
12: events discussing it. Just one one thing. When you ask uh, Walter, uh, why would they uh, have, what motives would they have to be to do this inside job? It, it doesn't matter. We do not have to speculate. We have this. Provable measurable uh, uh, tangible fact that the building was brought down by controlled demolition
1: just this fact Is enough to if if just that fact was established Then you're right, Uh, but it's very far from established, but we'll get your friend on I promise you Uh, We will get him on next week if we can so tell all your friends I know you've got plenty of them. Thanks for the call Samuel Jared is in Pennsylvania on Belarus. Go ahead, Jared. Uh, hello, George. Uh, I'm calling about uh, the recent uh,
13: coverage of Belarus in the media, yeah. and I must say, I'm just I'm very disappointed with some of the coverage, even from RT or Sputnik. It's just like it just keeps buying into the, the the Western propaganda that you know that Lukashenko is some dictator or something like this. And, I mean, like, I don't have any proof at all that he's a dictator. I mean, you know, he's been elected since 1994. Maybe he's just very popular or something like that. Like, we don't know what's going on on the ground in Belarus. Like, all these protesters and everything else, they may not even be Belarusians, for all we know. They could be people from... Uh, Poland, or
1: Lithuania, or anywhere else, for all we know. Jared, even Jesus wouldn't get over 80% in an election after 27 years in power. The election result is utterly ridiculous. But how do we know that? Because it flies against all logic. The idea that a Soviet-era guy is still winning over 80% of the vote in an election 27 years after coming to power is inherently ridiculous.
13: Well, then have another election,
1: I don't know. Well look Jared, if he was that popular, uh, where are the equally large demonstrations in his support uh, on the streets of Belarus, there have been demonstrations and they have been deliberately uh, avoided by Western media, uh, but they haven 't been anything like as large as the demonstrations of his opponents Well, his opponents are definitely
13: um, his opponents are large he definitely does have opposition in the country i don't i don 't deny that I mean. But um, to say that he's a dictator, I mean, like, he has opposition in his country. Therefore, like, he's not like this strong arm, like, you know, I'm going to arrest everybody in the streets or anything like that. Uh, I mean, the truth of the matter is that Lukashenko, from what I've seen, was uh, the one who stopped a lot of the privatization and neoliberal sell-off that was going on in Eastern Europe for Belarus at the time. That's true, yeah. And And I also know that it's not just the West that also um, wants to get uh, Lukashenko out. I mean, there's also a big conflict he's been having recently with Russia. Um, I've read some reports about him and the Wagner um, uh, group uh, the private uh, Russian uh, military contract group that uh, he uh, apparently arrested a few in his own country, and um,
1: what about his meeting so, well, with the, I, what about his meeting with Mike Pompeo and the belly dance he did for Pompeo? Would that not be something that might make uh, the Kremlin nervous? he... Well, I mean, he's playing both sides, honestly. You can't Great. really blame him. Well, why can't you really blame him? Would you belly dance for Mike Pompeo? No, but I'm not
13: the president of Belarus. I mean, I, I hate Mike Pompeo, but I, he is the, the head of state. And well, but, Mike but
1: if you were President Putin next door, uh, would you uh, be in love Uh, with uh, Mike Pompeo's Belly Dancing Act?
13: Uh, No, but I do remember very specifically it was Russia in uh, 2010 that did try to oust uh, President Lukashenko in uh, that election, which also... I would say, in a lot of ways, he did win the overwhelming popular support. Well, of the I'm people sure he did.
1: Uh, he, he always <clears throat> he always wins overwhelmingly. Um, m- my point is, there were two pro-Moscow presidential candidates on the ballot, and Lukashenko disqualified both of them. So I'm surprised. Why you're surprised uh, that Russia is ambivalent uh, on the Lukashenko issue? Well, I
10: mean,
13: just because they're disqualified, I mean... ah, oh. just, I mean, <laughs> just because what, what the,
1: the only two pro-Russian presidential candidates are disqualified. Jared, be serious well, here. I mean, Luko, well, Lukashenko isn't, you know, anti-Russia.
13: He's just... Well, why was closed. he belly
1: dancing with Mike Pompeo?
13: Like I said, I mean, he has to... He has to have a very fine line between the West and Russia. I mean, you know, you've got to play the game, basically. Oh, I mean, yeah. he, doesn't want,
1: to, yeah. he maybe, doesn't want to
13: be overthrown by
1: either side. Maybe Moscow didn't fancy the game he was playing. Jared, thanks uh, for that contrary view. I welcome them. Uh, and please uh, call me, 2077 or from the U.S., one 4480. All opinions matter. Let me take a 60 second break.
0: Radio Sputnik.
14: Hello, Peach of Express, Woking. What is it you want? Oh, you want an ill advised interview on the BBC a cheese pizza, extra immature, and a raw bailout. No, we don't take taxpayers' money. Yeah, but we do take contactless. Would you like a receipt for that, Mr Prince?
0: Talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome.
1: So, why is Sir Keir Starmer not 20 points ahead in the polls, ahead of uh, this uh, farce of a British government? A, he's not human, 7%, down one. B, he's dull, 37%, stays the same. C, he's Tony Blair, without the laughs, 56%, up one. You can vote until nine o'clock, I think, on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Uh, in response to the poll, Chewy says, option four, he's a political zombie, just like the other infiltrators in the now dead Labour Party. And on Facebook, Rhonda says, he, uh, this is about uh, Biden, he needs to stay there in his basement. Can't wait for the debate with Trump. I don't believe that debate will ever happen it would be, it would be uh, the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Uh, Trump would literally maul him to pieces. Dawson says, I've been trying to get a COVID test for my granddaughter today. We live in Oldham, there are no appointments, so you can't get a test. There are also no home tests available. I turned up at the mobile testing station and was turned away as were two other women who were also asking for tests for their children, who were all showing symptoms. We were all turned away. I was ready to go to any testing station. I was ready to drive to Stoke to make my point. But there was no appointment available, no answer from the phone or from the website. Gus says, we're going to see a lot of MPs standing down soon, not long now. That's enigmatic. Gus, do tell us why. And Jerry says Trump is going to win by a landslide. Old Biden is even too scared to debate with him. The Democrats are putting their own nails in their own coffin. And on Twitter, Mark says the only noteworthy thing that Starmer has done since the 4th of April is being photographed taking the knee. Time will tell how wise that was. There's also a degree of voter antipathy to the woke liberalism, which occasionally rears its head, only occasionally, Mark, it's rampant. Let's hear from Chris in Colchester on the virus. Go ahead, Chris.
15: Hi, George. Hi. Um,
1: yeah, no, I, I found it interesting, actually,
15: um, you saying this stuff about not being able to find some way to get a test, but if we look at Leicester, where there was an alleged outbreak. Um, in the weeks running up to the lockdown, they'd opened a whole bunch of testing centres and were literally banging on people's doors, getting them to try and take a test. And then there was an alleged outbreak. uh, On the alleged, were they
1: they faking it, Chris?
15: uh, Well, yeah, there was plenty of testing, but tests don't mean uh, symptoms. And even the BBC... No, you're calling it
1: an alleged outbreak. I'm asking you if the patients were faking it. No, I'm saying the tests are uh,
15: not reliable and cases don't mean symptoms, they don't mean hospitalisations or deaths. There's plenty of... What
1: about the fact that there's now uh, a big increase in hospitalisations? Is that fake? Where are they? Uh, where are the hospitalizations?: uh, The numbers are steadily going up. If you listen in the third hour to Dr Ranjit, we'll get the numbers. Uh, but the number of cases is doubling every week now.
15: Yeah, the cases are going up. Yeah. But, yeah, the cases are going up. But we've seen, even with the BBC is reporting that uh, dead viruses are being picked up on tests even four months. You could you could it for four months. Ago. Well, that's
1: interesting. So you do accept that there is such a thing as the virus, or there couldn't be a dead one? I, I'm
15: I'm not. Why are you making that accusation? That I'm making out the virus is fake. I've never said that. I've been on your show for months. Mm. Obviously, the virus is real. It's just exaggerated to an insane degree. You know
1: that a virus Uh, is neither alive nor dead. There's no such thing as a dead virus.
15: Okay, so top epidemiologists at Oxford are wrong, and you're right. There
1: there is no such thing as a dead virus. A virus only comes alive when it is in your system. if, If you spoke to Professor Carl Hennigan, you can get someone on your show that has a
15: different point of view, someone I've got you on my show for months. No, 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 but you won't, you won't have a guest on, apart from the same doctor, you won't have a professional epidemiologist, Tanutra Gupta from Oxford University, saying she cannot get her work printed in mainstream journals, and no
1: one will have her on, and you're even worse than the BBC uh, and Sky News. Are the doctors uh, conspiring against this woman? Why? Why would they do that? Well, why, why don't you get her on and ask her? No. I didn't say doctors were conspired. I didn't, I didn't make that claim yeah, that they were conspired. You said she can't get published in the medical journals.
15: I said mainstream. She, she can't get published in the mainstream media. She ah, can't get published. My apologies.
1: My apologies. I thought you said the mainstream media, the medical journals. Let me, as you've been on for months, and as you do not deny the existence of the virus, and you ask why I'm cross with you, it's because I have seen people suffering, and a friend of mine almost died, was 76 days in a coma. 76 days in a coma. One of the finest, greatest men in the land. And I get barroom boers like you on the phone or on the comment sections after these shows with all your Facebook and internet intellect and research who imply somehow that this is not a deadly threat to people. That's why I get angry, Chris. Well, hang on,
15: George. And I told you this months ago. My dad died in June through lockdown. It wasn't through the virus. It was lockdown. He had uh, a kidney. He He had one kidney and he died of renal failure because he could not, Get to hospital I think to have- that,
1: that's shocking and, and my sympathies are with you, uh, and I can well understand now uh, why you're bitter about that, I would be just as bitter as you. But the failings of the NHS in being able to cope with two things at the same time does not mean that the first thing isn't real and deadly. I didn't say that. I no, didn't but say it. You was imply never- it with every every nuance of your voice. You imply it. You called the outbreak in Leicester an alleged outbreak because the virus is weakened. Even Cole Hennigan said that
15: it that it's become a case demic. It's not what it was in March. That's clear now. That the the, the hospitalisation and death. Are not where they were in March.
1: Well, let's, hope, is- let's hope that continues. Uh, and uh, you've had your, uh, your say, as you say, you have had it for months, and you'll continue to get it. But that one doctor uh, that you uh, rather scornfully refer to is our doctor, and we trust him, and the vast majority of the audience trusts him. So we'll ask him about the point that you have made. Thanks very much for calling. Let's hear from Gerard in Kilwinning in Ayrshire. Go ahead, Gerard. Hi, George. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Welcome. spoke to a few weeks ago. Great show, as always. Just before I make my main point, that
16: the last guy was that I sympathise with him as well for his father passing away. But until people actually realise this virus is not going away, it's, it's coming back now, actually, because people are not doing what they should be doing and isolating, and they're going around to their neighbour's house and all the other stupid stuff. But it 's is going to come back, and it's going to kill a lot more people than it already has them. So I just wish people would take it seriously. Yeah, me um, too.
1: Me too. I'm, I'm, it gets me angrier and angrier every time it comes up. Me, me too, George. Just my main point, really, it's
16: about... Obviously, the American election is coming up in a couple of months' time, and... I'm no fan of Biden, um, but I do think we can get our teeth in and, and hope that he wins because I'm not worried about Trump, I'm more worried about the guys around him, you have Pompeo's, you have Pence's. We all know Trump is the idiot king, um, but these, these other guys, they are from the, the, the Dick Cheney old school of American exceptionalism and neoconservatism, and I, and I worry actually, George, in the, the way up to the election, you look what happened in January with the, uh, the murder, the assassination of uh, General Soleimani in Iran. I worry that these guys around Trump are going to try and push him into doing something similar to make him seem presidential in the run-up to the election because it is neck and neck, I think, um, and it could go either way, but I think they're going to look at it, try and make him seem presidential by doing something like that and and unfortunately it could be bad for all of us. I just wonder what you think.
1: Well, it's a great call, best call of the night. Uh, Gerard, there's a, a clear and present danger of that and probably against China. Uh, Maybe on the Indian Frontier Maybe in the South China Sea Uh, the danger of an Outbreak of hostilities with China is a clear and present danger in the run-up to the election And I am myself like you extremely worried about that. Thanks uh, for that excellent uh, call Let's hear from Riz in Manchester. Go ahead Riz. Hi George, it was just about 9/11, and I've heard. I mean, I've been listening to you for many
16: years. Um, okay. It just worries me that I usually agree with you completely, but it worries me about your position on 9/11. I think, I think it's the most geopolitically important event of my lifetime. Sure. It's changed the sure. world sure. in I agree with ways that. that we can't imagine. And yep. one of your subjects that I really trust you on is the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've said that, and I want your opinion on this, and I've never really quite got to the bottom of who you think was behind the Iraq war. Are you able to sort of clarify that? Because I know you have programs. Who was behind it?
15: Tony it? Blair. Who was behind it?
1: Bush and Blair who, were behind it. On their own. Well, their, their regimes were uh, behind it. I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. What I'm saying is, I heard you the other day say to somebody,
16: you asked them in a slightly derogatory way, who do you think was behind 9-11 then? And you said, what, George Bush, as if he couldn't plan anything. So you have no problems believing that the, but Blair and Bush and the in America could kill a million people for no, yeah. oil in Iraq. That's but you have a problem believing no. that 9-11 might be an inside job. You have a
1: problem no, with that. No, no. You, you've missed my point. My point is not that George Bush wasn't wicked enough to do something like that. He was plenty wicked enough and did things much, much worse than that. It's my case that in order to do those much worse things, he had absolutely no need to create a casus belli on such a cataclysmic scale as killing thousands of his own people on prime time television. But, but I know he was stupid. I know, he was stupid. I know he was stupid, Riz, but not that stupid. Okay, George, the cabal that was behind him, because obviously he couldn't rub I'm like- I'm always you know, he, he was nervous was not at the word cabal. Define this
16: cabal, Riz. There's no, there's no cabal. The, the cabal was the neoconservatives who put him into power. You know that I mean, come on, this is not an unintelligent conversation. You know that there was people behind him. He didn't just get to power himself. There are people behind him. You call it the deep state, call it what you want. There are more powerful people behind him. And I'm not going down any conspiracy route here. This is what you talk about all the time, the deep state, the people who are in the background. Yeah, just it's avoid here.
1: the word cabal, if you don't mind, because it has uh, connotations. Go, the, the deep state, the people around Bush... Uh, that uh, the project for a new American century, of course they were the intellectual authors of the policy of an idiot savant. Uh, Bush was inches from imbecility. We never imagined anyone even stupider could come to power in the United States. But that regime were not stupid people and If you're saying to me that they sat down and decided to seed the Twin Towers uh, with explosives, then organise the hijack of these aeroplanes and use both of them, belt and braces, to commit this crime, I am entitled to ask you, why would they need to do that? Why? They wrote it a year before. They need it
16: in in the... PNAC document, that's, uh, the so Project for New American Century mm. document, mm. about the, they needed this. General Wesley Clark came out of the Pentagon and said, we've got a plan because of 9-11 to attack seven countries. And do you know what? That was Iraq. It was Libya. It was Syria. It ends with Iran, that list. And we've gone through the list. History has been proven. We know the plan to invade Afghanistan was on George Bush's desk. The night before 9/11. Okay, they've been planning it for a while, but what a coincidence! There's so many questions to be asked. I can't believe
1: you would actually. But I do ask the them. Official- and I do ask them, and you're asking them. No, uh, the 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 reality is that the United States had no need whatsoever of any any pretext to attack Afghanistan. Absolutely none. They could have announced it at midnight that because uh, the uh, state of Afghanistan was harboring uh, bin Laden, who had attacked American embassies, who had attacked the uh, SS coal, uh, we were, g- were going to invade Afghanistan. He had no need of an additional pretext to do that. To 9-11 than that, George, it
16: also brought, how would they have brought the Patriot Act in? How would they bring mass surveillance in? There was, it was a multi-level crime. It was done. It was a crime, and it was done to
1: to put into place. We didn't have a 9/11, and we've got our own version uh, of the surveillance acts, as Snowden has pointed out to us. Mass surveillance of the population equally does not need a pretext. It is the norm. The Patriot Act was not the norm. The Patriot Act, uh, this, no,
16: it wasn't acceptable so, uh, to bring this through. Anyway, we can argue about this all day long. The bottom line is, I'd like you to have Richard Gage on, which you promised you would do. Please contact him, because this man is an architect. There are 3,000 of them. They're asking why right. Building Seven fell, and it's a most important right. question. Please do get Richard well, Gage on. That's uh, the one thing I ask. We,
1: we, are, we, are, we are even now doing so, Rez. You can trust me. You used to know that. Thanks Riz in Manchester. Let's take the news with Jamie Lowe.
0: Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway
2: every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik.
10: It's time to double down with Max and Stacey. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka bling, just about everything money related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking: are dead cats bouncing or have
17: fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down.
0: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language.
17: Find us at sputniknews.com.
1: Sputnik News. U.S. President
14: Donald Trump has promised to be really vicious in his campaign for re-election. He said his anger about a recent Democratic advertisement that highlighted his alleged comment disparaging dead American soldiers had freed him to take his campaign to the next level. Trump went on to describe his opponent Joe Biden as shot and the puppet of the radical left before accusing Democrats of trying to lock law-abiding Americans in their homes during the pandemic as they fight God, guns and oil. More than 30 people have been killed by wildfires that are sweeping through U.S. West Coast states. Dozens of people are missing in Oregon alone, with one emergency official saying that the state should be preparing for a mass fatality incident. Fires have been raging in Oregon, California and Washington for three weeks now, burning millions of acres of land and destroying thousands of homes. Tens of thousands of people have been forced to evacuate. Democratic presidential challenger Joe Biden warned on Saturday that climate change poses an imminent existential threat to our way of life and accused President Donald Trump, a climate skeptic, of denying that reality. Trump, who is due to visit California on Monday to be briefed on the latest situation, blames the wildfires on poor forest management. Britain's Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland, has defended plans to potentially override the EU withdrawal agreement as an emergency Brexit insurance policy. He said he had hoped powers being sought by ministers in the Internal Markets Bill would never be needed as a solution with the EU could be found. Labour have indicated they will not support the proposed legislation, which MPs will debate for the first time tomorrow unless major changes are made to it. The EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, yes. said the EU could not have been more clearer when the two sides agreed the Brexit withdrawal agreement last year. An Irish foreign affairs minister, Simon Coveney, said it was completely <laughs> bogus for the UK to claim that the EU was now interpreting the withdrawal agreement in a way which could lead to the breakup of the UK. The Irish tour shark Michael Martin also said the UK should expect a firm and strong response from the EU to the proposed internal markets bill. The British government's coronavirus testing programme is reported to be in chaos with leaked documents revealing a backlog of 185,000 swabs and a large number of people who never received their results. Officials apologised last week over growing problems with the test and trace process. Despite Boris Johnson promising a world-beating operation would be in place by June, many suspected COVID-19 patients are being told there are no test sites available to them. And with infections soaring across the UK, the leaked documents show the system is currently so stressed that it's sending samples to laboratories in Italy and Germany. France has reported a record daily increase in coronavirus cases as the country struggles to contain a fresh surge in infections. On Saturday, health officials said there are more than 10,561 new cases, rising by more than 1,000 from Friday's figures. The numbers of people admitted to hospital and intensive care are also increasing. Infection rates have risen for all age groups since June, but officials say the increase is particularly significant among young adults. France is one of several European countries to see a surge in new COVID-19 cases. The daily count of people testing positive for coronavirus in Scotland has risen for the fourth day in a row. A total of 244 tested positive for COVID-19 in the last 24 hours, according to the Scottish government. It's the second day in a row that the figure has exceeded 200 and the highest number of confirmed cases since May the 6th. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, the British Iranian woman jailed in Iran, has not been taken to court to face new charges as expected, her husband has said. Iranian state media had said she would be required to face fresh charges four years after her initial conviction. The Foreign Office welcomed the news and called on Iran to permanently release her. Two Los Angeles police officers are in critical condition after being shot in what police are calling an ambush. Video of the incident shows a figure approaching the officer's vehicle before opening fire and running away. Los Angeles Sheriff Alex Villanueva called the act cowardly. The suspect remains at large. And finally, with no end in sight to the coronavirus pandemic, it looks like protective facewear is here to stay. While environmentalists are warning about the damage discarded face masks can do to the environment, the very rich are collecting their own extremely expensive mask wear. Throughout the pandemic, designers have been releasing their take on face masks. Luxury versions include Off-White's popular Arrow logo face mask and Burberry's vintage Czech cotton design, retailing for £90. And now Louis Vuitton is taking it a step further, releasing a luxury face shield that's designed to be both stylish and protective. The LV shield transitions from clear to dark in sunlight, protecting wearers from the sun. It also features golden studs engraved with Louis Vuitton's brand name and an elastic monogrammed headband. The visor could also be worn upwards as a classic peaked cap, according to the label. Pricing has not yet been announced, but as a high-end fashion brand, it's not likely to be cheap. Other Louis Vuitton headwear, including hats, sun glasses and other garments sell for hundreds of dollars each. The face shield will be sold online and at select Louis Vuitton stores starting on October the 30th. Well, I don't know about you, but I think I probably will be giving that one a miss. But that's the latest here on Sputnik. I'm Jamie Lowe.
0: You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio.
1: Well, I didn't know those uh, things that were just in the news about the uh, state of Britain's response to the coronavirus, uh, but they absolutely buttress what I was saying earlier in the show. The testing, tracing, contacting system has completely broken down and we have paid I don't know how many billions, my estimate is more than £100 billion uh, on PPE uh, fiascos and on test, trace and track fiascos and we are about to launch, um, I think he called it moonshot, but I called it moonshine, Boris Johnson's 100 billion pound plan to basically test everybody all the time, which by the way, is what South Korea did uh, from the beginning. You can get a coronavirus test at the bus stop in South Korea. But we, the sixth biggest economy in the world, and with a, a government with a majority of 80, a stable, powerful government, have made a terrible cod, Of this entire business and when I just heard on the news that 176,000 swabs uh, are in a backlog not uh, tested not analyzed rather uh, when I heard that 90% of people cannot get a test I know that to be true because as I said earlier I, I tried hard to get a test and someone who should know I can't divulge uh, their identity, it would be uh, uh, dishonourable to do so, but who is in a position to know, told me that 80%, it's now 90, 80% of people looking for a test cannot get one. This when Hancock is telling us daily how much he's ramped everything up. i would lost count of the number of ramping ups there have been. Let's talk to Moat's medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar. Dr. Ranjit, uh, welcome back. Uh, The story is back, Uh, the virus is back. How worried should we be?
18: George, hi, good to speak to you. Um, In a way, the story never really went away, George. Um, You've been talking about the inadequacies of testing, tracking, isolation. We said from the very beginning, all the way back in March, when we first spoke uh, on the show, George, um, that the way that the countries had successfully dealt with coronavirus was to have very accurate sight of where the virus was, i.e., by rapidly developing large scale testing. And then those people who had the virus, seeing how infectious it was and how easily under normal societal conditions, um, as we used to enjoy just six months ago, um, the virus could spread the plan was to isolate the virus from the community rather than stop the whole community from moving. And as a result, those countries have essentially returned to normal, though the virus has continued to ramp, rampage throughout the world. Now much of the world, if you look at South America, um, if you look at parts of South Asia, parts of India, you see that the extreme poverty as well as poor medical provision uh, in those states has exacerbated the spread. But as you said, the United States and the United Kingdom, um, our governments, because of their ideology, their laissez-faire economic ideology, which also kind of then spread uh, into their um, field of public health, they've always, the, the Tories have always said they don't believe in a nanny state, they don't believe in, you know, provision. They've sometimes, you, you, not, not, not infrequently, um, backbench MPs of the Conservative Party denounced the NHS is the last socialist institution, or the last Stalinist institution in, in their words. So they don't believe in providing, on a national basis, health care for all. Um, and they don't believe in alleviating poverty, which is why our indexes of poverty are, are pretty appalling, even before this economic problem and before the latest economic crisis and, and coronavirus. So that's led to the massive spreads that we've seen. And herd immunity has been really the policy throughout this pandemic on the part of our government, laced with, as they've seen the size of the, of the problem burgeoning, you know, kind of accusatory um, uh, statements against the public, that it's the public's fault, they're not following guidelines. That Recently this week, Matt Hancock has been saying quite often, you know, he, he doesn't want people who are not eligible for testing to turn up and have tests because they're creating this backlog in the system. But the system itself, Lacked capacity when it really mattered, when the virus was spreading exponentially. Um, then, you know, through lockdown, the numbers were greatly uh, reduced. Through summer, we know the deaths have been greatly reduced, but we know we've not had adequate sight. And even in that lowest point to the virus, we think probably 4,000 people were getting it a week. The last few days, we've seen in testing, test-proved cases. Uh, you know, three and a half thousand cases a day have been shown on testing, which represents a large increase, and the studies of of Imperial, the large kind of population-based studies, are suggesting that the R-rate, the reproduction rate, is now 1.7, though the government is trying to put out lower figures. 1.7 means essentially that this virus again is back to the point of doubling uh, every week, in terms of the numbers who have it, and while the deaths have been low, uh, it's been essentially shown um, that that's chiefly because the numbers of of, of young people um, who've been getting the the virus have been disproportionately high. But this week we've also seen a worrying new sign. Uh, I was just reading the Sunday Times today. They're saying there've been 43 outbreaks, again new outbreaks this week uh, in care homes uh, of the coronavirus, with 1,100 cases per week of the elderly in care homes. We know they're the most vulnerable population. Most likely, over 80-year-olds, we know, have a mortality rate of some 14%. So it does, these are extremely worrying signs that, as we said last week, you know, it may be young people who predominantly have the virus, but there's no way, you know, easily of confining the virus just to a certain demographic, and it's likely to presage a wider spread in the community, George.
1: You've partly answered uh, my next question by pointing out that if a significant number of younger and healthier people get it, they're less likely to die of it, maybe even less likely to have to go into hospital with it. Uh, But the uh, young people, of course, are mixing all the time with older people, their own parents, their own grandparents, Uh, people that are older and sicker, frailer, weaker than them, Uh, all the time at work, in shops and so on. Uh, So that would not be a cap on hospitalizations and deaths uh, in the the long term if they were passing it on. Uh, You've partly answered that. uh, But there is a school of thought, uh, you will have heard it uh, earlier in the show, that actually the virus is weaker and that it's not hospitalizing or killing as many people because effectively it's running out of steam. What's your view on that?
18: Um, I, I've been looking at that question over the last period as deaths have been falling to see if that's true. There, there was certain articles I read that the virus is becoming less angry. There was only um, speculation from uh, sometimes hospital clinicians, based on the fact that they were seeing fewer hospitalizations. But I don't think that the scientific and genetic evidence really backs that up. I was reading some papers in Nature and Cell on this question, trying to uh, see what the, 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 the prevalent scientific opinion was based on their testing. And while there are a very large number of mutations, we, we, we've said, you know, every time a genetic sequence is copied, there there can be mistakes in that copy. And whilst complex cells, as yours and mine, have mechanisms to correct those, simple viruses don't have such complex mechanisms to correct them. And therefore, the rate of mutation of viruses, which are present in millions of people around the world, we know currently there have been 29 million people around the world who have been test-proven cases. But if you look at the fact that in the United Kingdom, we're saying around 350 people have been test-proven. But if you look at the wider uh, in, you know, apps based on self-reporting of symptoms, the estimates are probably that around 3 million people within the UK have had that virus. So millions and millions of people have the virus. Each person that has the virus, the virus replicates millions and millions of times. So there's many opportunities to the, for, for, mis- for for mistakes to be made. Uh, in the replication of the single-stranded RNA, which makes up the coronavirus sequence. And probably 10 or 12,000 slight variations, but they're very minor variations. Um, One that's particularly gained prominence is this uh, uh, D614G mutation. It's a single-point mutation, and people have been interested in it because it is within the spike protein of the coronavirus. And we know the spike protein is the way in which the virus um, latches onto this angiotensin converting in this ace two in in, uh, in um, receptor uh, on the surface of the lung epithelium. That's the way it's internalized. But actually, that mutation has become so prevalent around the world. That actually, scientists kind of consider that mutation actually, really, just to be the virus. That that is what the what the pandemic is. And it, if anything, that's made the virus slightly more infective. It's it's one of the more infective strains. That's probably why it's so much more prevalent than 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 other mutations that have been found. But it doesn't seem that it's any less harmful. The the estimates vary. If you look at the whole world of tested uh, population, if there have been 29. Um, A million people proven to have contracted this virus worldwide by testing. Of those, 930,000 have died. And that accounts for a 4%, very crude estimate of death rate. Now, of course, we know many more people have the virus than are tested. But equally, we do also know that the deaths are far higher than than, uh, we have proven because those deaths are only people who have test positive and have been reported as having coronavirus deaths. And we know that You know, even in the UK care home uh, during the weeks of the pandemic, there were probably 60,000 deaths in care home, which was well in excess of normal. We know that actually there were 80,000 excess deaths within that short period of time. So we know deaths are far higher than estimated, even in the UK, where records are good, let alone the rest of the world. So, you know, probably the rate of mortality remains between one and two percent, maybe as high as two percent, and maybe slightly higher in countries where uh, there's an older population, a sicker population, um, and where healthcare facilities are poor, where the population may be immunosuppressed or malnourished, and that's why in the third world we're not absolutely sure. Figures are bad. We don't know whether the relatively young population will protect uh, those in, in the in the most exploited sections of the population worldwide, or whether the fact that actually they're relatively malnourished and have very poor health f- facilities uh, and cannot avoid uh, the virus. I mean. Pakistan has relatively low rates. They've, they've put in place a very good system of remuneration um, for workers who've been laid off. India have very poor rates in, for the most part. they did the, the reverse. They forced people from highly infected areas who were workers who couldn't get work to return to their villages, thus spreading it throughout the country. So you know I don't think there's clear evidence uh, that the virus is getting less dangerous. There's a speculation in terms of genetic theory that, look, the viruses that are most successful are those which don't kill their host, because if you kill the host, you can't reproduce and spread. But we already know, actually, the mortality rate is quite low from coronavirus. So even if it has a high mortality in the elderly, it's able to spread quite freely throughout the population. And equally, the selection pressure for this new virus is low, because essentially, there's all, at the beginning of this pandemic, so back in January, there was almost zero immunity in the world population to the virus. So there's not a great selection pressure for the virus to mutate in that sense. So I think that my overall summary of the evidence, as I can see it, read it, interpret it, and from my clinical practice, is that the virus hasn't changed significantly in its mortality. Um, Currently the death rates are low because it's the younger section of the population who are getting the virus. But that is already beginning to change, and we're seeing it spread to the more vulnerable sections. Uh, of the population, George.
1: Finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always. Um, someone, Alice, has asked me uh, if, uh, to ask you if you believe that Sweden have managed this virus better than the UK. There are a lot of people uh, on the libertarian side of uh, politics, for example, uh, who uh, began by praising uh, Sweden's uh, line on this, and then were silent for a time when Sweden then had a far higher death toll than its neighboring countries, uh, Norway and Denmark, uh, but now uh, are animated again uh, in support of the Swedish line because uh, Sweden's numbers uh, are not now as bad as the likes of ours are, and by doing what they did, they did not devastate their economy at the same time. In the way that we have, uh, the balance that we took uh, ha- was very different to the Swedish balance. What's your current thinking on Sweden?
18: I mean, I don't I don't think extensively about Sweden, and I don't have extensive knowledge of the Swedish economy. Sweden's economy uh, it has an industrial economy, similar in many respects to ours. We have uh, joint pharmaceutical companies. They are essentially a, a large. Capitalist economy uh, as we are, but their population is much smaller. The population is around 10 million, whereas ours is 66 million. So the absolute numbers in Sweden have been uh, relatively uh, low. I think uh, they've only recorded six or 7,000 deaths, but if you multiply that by six, it straight away comes up actually to our official tally. So there's not a great deal of difference. Now, Sweden essentially. uh, thought that they wouldn't be it was so infectious, the agent, that they wouldn't be able to limit its spread without very like, severe population measures, and therefore they openly adopted uh, and have maintained essentially a herd immunity policy. Now, if you listen to the Swedish um, policy makers, they will be the first to admit that actually they say it's far too early to see, so we won't know for several years, when the, when the virus is totally gone, when they can calculate the absolute mortality rate, they'll be able to compare them accurately across countries and compare them with policies. They, their, their current thinking is that probably it will make no difference. The U.K. may have you know, issued a lockdown at a certain point, but it didn't do what some countries have done very effectively. If I would wanted to point to a country that was very effective, I would again point to China. I would, I would point to Korea, both North and South Korea. I would, point, uh, I would point to Taiwan. I would point to New Zealand to a lesser extent. Those countries early on took aggressive health measures to protect the population. And in protecting the population, they essentially eradicated the virus, and in eradicating the virus they prote- protected the health of their people who returned to normal, and that was the best way of protecting the economy. Those countries like Britain who thought that they would be able to let it rampage through uh, the population, that it would be the relatively old who, who were, cold is a, is a strong word, but who were sacrificed, um, who would bear the brunt of the infection suddenly woke up one morning when they were seeing the drastic effects in Italy and realized that half a million deaths, 600,000 deaths, uh, uh, would be too politically toxic for them to manage and change their policy. But it, it was essentially too late. We'd had hundreds of instances of infection spreading from what was then the epicenter—not China, not Wuhan—but spreading from Europe uh, to to England. You'll remember that uh, Easter, that that March bank holiday, um, you know, season when there were people bringing back the virus from ski resorts and holidays all over Europe. Uh, the most wealthy, because as we know, the most wealthy ten percent of the population are those who overwhelmingly uh, fly and and have those kind of holidays, bringing the virus back and spreading it and our 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 uh, uh, government did very little initially to stop its spread you've talked a lot about uh, t- uh, the test and trace uh, and and perhaps you've you've explored that enough but essentially you know if there are 200,000 people who are not getting tested now if as you say quite rightly say tens and hundreds of millions are being funneled away from the nhs into the private sector the nhs's ability to deal with this pandemic is not being uh, increased rather Uh, the NHS is being systematically starved of resources during this crucial time of pandemic, its own mechanisms of dealing with public health, health inequality are being whittled away. And that was actually the motivation behind the final closure of Public Health England, which itself was a body which had arisen uh, as a result of previous attacks on the ability of the NHS to plan long term for the health needs of our population. So our government, far from protecting the NHS to save lives is neither save, protecting lives nor protecting the NHS, but rather it's wielding a hatchet on the NHS, which is having a devastating effect on health uh, equality and health outcomes for the long-term, uh, for, the, for the working class of this country, George.
1: Thank you very much again, Dr. Ranjit Bra for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Alas, we're going to be talking about this for a very long time. Let's take calls now for the rest of the show, shall we? Uh, Sean in Lanarkshire on this subject. Sean, welcome. Hi there, George. How are you doing? Thanks for getting me on again. Nice to hear from you. Not at all.
16: Uh, George, I was incensed this week to hear Matt Hancock apportion any blame for anything to do with COVID before he's been on his hands and knees begging the nation's forgiveness for his part in tens of thousands of people's deaths. The strategy that the government adopted from the get-go was wrong. They didn't provide the people in the health service with effective PPE, the ineffective deployment of funds. Ranjit just spoke about it. Lies over testing, not closing the borders early, not down earlier. And then he's abolishing public health organisations in the middle of a pandemic. Dude,
17: who does he think he is? See well, uh, we it, is, my uh, it
1: is uh, interesting, and the, the indictment you table is a powerful one indeed. Uh, Hancock uh, does appear to be driving the government's policy, if the leaks from inside the cabinet are uh, are to be believed. Um, I first met uh, Hancock on uh, on Question Time uh, from Gillingham, and if you told me then that this insubstantial figure would, in just a few years later, uh, have the nation's health in his hands, I would not have believed you, uh, even, if, uh, even if I hadn't known uh, the scale of the pandemic that there uh, would be. Sean, uh, wh- what, what do you think of his overall performance? I
16: think it's an absolute shambles, George. The man should have the decency to resign and let somebody that's effective in the position uh, take over. He's a proven liar. Um, And and the fact that he's blaming the youth, these are people who have went out and supported their grandparents through all of this, showed them how to use Zoom and online, lent them messages. He's criticising people who uh, the government's just slapped in the face over the
1: the uh, fiasco that I exams as well, who do they think they are? Well, let me ask you finally, uh, the situation in Scotland is no better, despite the SNP's attempts to claim that it was five times better. It turns out that uh, Scotland is the third worst country in the world uh, for coronavirus deaths. And there are thousands of old people who were sent willingly, willfully, Uh, by the Scottish Government into care homes where there was no defence against the coronavirus. Uh, What do you think of the performance of the Scottish Health Minister?
16: Let me say this George, it's a national scandal and we talk about algorithms. I want an algorithm made. The algorithm that I want made is how much time have have they wasted politically going for this independence that doesn't make economic sense, Then they should have been providing public health services, education services, and supporting the economic fabric of this country. That's what I want an algorithm made for, George. Get one of them if you can for me, please, brother.
1: Great call. Thanks for that, Sean, in Lanarkshire. Now a 60-second break, then calls all the way through. I'm opening the asylum. If you want to take... uh, We want to make calls on 9-11... Let rip.
2: Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for a regular segment called Criminal Injustice about the most egregious conduct of our courts and how justice is denied to so many people in this country. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Thursday and every Thursday for thorough and independent analysis of our criminal injustice system.
3: How did I do? I'm sorry, Prime Minister. At no point did you drive on the left-hand side of the road. And instead of driving us forward, you made several U-turns. We haven't gone anywhere. I think you'll find if you turn backwards uh, enough times, eventually uh, you'll go forward. So, uh, did I pass? No, you failed. Miserably. But my teachers said I'd get much higher grades. Better luck next time. Th- this doesn't happen to people uh, like me. You leave me no choice. I'm sorry, but rules are rules, even for prime ministers. What on earth is that? My mutant pet. <laughs> Dominic Cummins? No. Big algorithm.
17: Get it.
0: Global higher education with one of the world's best-known iconoclasts. The mother of all talk shows with George Galloway.
1: I've got the copyright on that big algorithm. Um, You think uh, I'd be credited, uh, at least. Raymond says on the Twitter... How long before the 1922 committee, that's the backbench Tory MPs, send a nice letter to Boris saying, well done on Brexit, but it's time to go. That's not fanciful, actually, Raymond, that might very well happen. And on Facebook, Lucisi says the general trend of this virus is that the death rate still remains around 2%. However, the general consensus on the topic of the pandemic fluctuates a lot amongst the members of the general population. Often the virus has been used as a means of addressing other more socio-political subjects in the political discourse. There are also those who see the pandemic as a hoax, which is a take we can discuss at length, couldn't we? And Jerry uh, says, Trump is going to win by a landslide. Old Biden is even too scared of debating him. I think I've read that one before. Let's take some 9-11 calls. Let's hope I don't regret this. It's Liam in Belfast. Go ahead, Liam. Hi, George. I'm sure you won't regret my call. I'm I'm very sensible in how I talk about
16: this. Thank you. (laughs) Your your man, man who was in earlier on, I didn't hear his whole thing, but I think basically he's a bit of a conspiracy. The real conspiracy for me is the fact that for the past 20 years, we have given billions of dollars to an Islamic caliphate like Saudi Arabia. We've We've bombed and invaded Somewhat secular nations like Iraq and Syria and Libya were, you know, before we did that, if you were a Christian in those countries, you, you had a reasonable life. You were living That was in the best,
1: uh, best place to be a Christian was Iraq.
16: And, and now, now it's basically <coughs> and a genocide in Christianity, you know. Uh, so everything we have done since 9-11, this is the real conspiracy. Instead of worrying about, you know, the, the steel in the Twin Towers shouldn't have fallen because it was built to withstand and all this nonsense about the, the bombs, the real conspiracy is everything that's happened since then. And, and everything we've done since nine policy-wise, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, George, but everything we've done in the Middle East and dealing with the jihadist threats, we've increased it. You know, yep. trying to kill Assad, he's, he's a secular leader. As much as he might do some evil things, he's a secular leader. And, you know, what do we want to do, bring ISIS in there by by killing him? It's just ridiculous. That's the real conspiracy people should be worried about, George.
1: Brilliant. I don't regret that call at all. Let's see about the next one. John in Sweden. Go ahead, John. Hello, George. Nice to speak with you again. A Scotsman uh, in Sweden. How wonderful.
17: Yeah. Um, As you'll know from our last conversation last year on this subject, Uh, We discussed a bit about Morton,
1: Greenock Morton. Ah, yes. The Greenock Morton. Hal Stewart. Kai Johansson. (laughs) And uh, was it Cowan and Go? Cowan, yeah, yeah. Now you're talking, John.
17: (laughs) Uh, uh, But uh, I want to move on. Um, What it was, I reviewed the uh, last, um, uh, some time ago, the last time I was on, uh, I think it was episode 12 of your fantastically popular show. Thank you. Congratulations for that. And I, I found um, when I was looking back through it, you were discussing 9 11 with another chap, and you said, Well, why would America do this to itself? And why do you need um, belt and braces? And it occurred to me that, that you thought that uh, the aircraft explosions, one aircraft per terror, not including the World Trade Center 7 which wasn't impacted by an aircraft that you thought the um, the buildings were brought down by an aircraft impact, is that a correct understanding of
1: Uh, of uh, your... uh, uh, Yeah, I saw the aircraft striking them and I saw them falling so that's a logical inference, yeah.
17: Yeah, okay. (laughs) Well, I want to move into physics now. an airliner impact into a, a concrete uh, a steel reinforced concrete structure and for the concrete structure to collapse in the way it did is impossible
1: well i saw it okay. happening i saw it happening yes but
17: that's an assertion you saw it happening so you inferred that the aircraft brought the building down yeah that was a case of you'll need loop-up. to prove you'll
1: yeah. need to be no you'll need to prove otherwise to me
17: Right, well, that's where I've got my, um, my my three sets of data out. First of all, is uh, what's called... Curb, uh, by the way, I'm a chartered engineer, structural mechanical engineer with 30 years in aerospace experience. Okay. You okay. probably know that from your notes from last no, time. No, I,
4: don't. <laughs> I wish gonna, I had notes.
17: I'm not going to um, make an assertion to you. I'm just going to speak through the physics if you would allow me to, I hope.
1: Have to be brief though, John, I've got a lot of people.
17: I hope it will be intelligible to you. If you have any questions, then please ask.
1: Give me your best point, John, because I've I've only got time for one, because there's about 100 people trying to get on. The
17: first one is uh, on schoolboy mechanics. If you write down the equation, S equals UT squared plus a half AT squared, and the initial speed of the building coming down is zero because it starts from rest. So that takes care of the UT term. And then AT squared, you rearrange the uh, algebra and you get the time coming out at 9.5 seconds for the tallest building at 440 metres. And what he, in YouTube that will show you that coming down in 11 seconds. Now that's too close not to discard free-fall behaviour. And the only mechanism to do that is uh, for... Full structural uh, collapse, and that means detonation of buildings. That's not quite of the a leap. Members. That's
1: quite a leap, John. Uh, but we're going to have uh, your man on, Gage. Is it Gage? Richard Gage? Yeah, Richard we're,
17: Gage.
1: No, we're uh, going to have him on, and uh, we'll have more time to discuss this. I need to press on, John. I'm sorry because there is literally more than a hundred people trying to get on, and there's only 20 minutes left. Peter in Dublin, let's hear from him. Yes. George, how are you? Listen, I was short. Goodbye, okay? And listen, don't cut
19: me short again. And don't rant at me, please, you know? Um, listen, even after I listened to Dr. Yan okay, I actually call him Ranit Idiot because he rants all about, it. he tells us all those things. He hasn't been in those countries at all. He doesn't have to do his research either, okay? I have no idea what like, you're like,
1: talking about. Oh, okay. Uh, but you're not talking to, um, a doctor early on, no? Ranjit Barr. Dr. Ranjit Barr, yes, about the coronavirus. Yes. But you're phoning up about 9-11. Yes, yes, I know, I know. What, what happened to Building 7? And um, Do you remember Greenfield Towers? The what towers? The, the Greenfield Towers in, in England, you see? How long did it burn? Grenfell, aha, uh-huh, yes. Yes, yeah, how that, long did that, it burn before that? They- that wasn't struck by two uh, uh, airliners. Yeah. No, 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 I have, what, uh, building 7? No, the grand, uh, I've had enough of you. Let me hear from Eves in Idaho. Go ahead, Eves. Hello, uh, thank you for
20: your beautiful show, and also uh, I would like to remind everybody that nine eleven is also the date of the assassination of uh, the President Allende. Yep. Uh, um, by the CIA, you know, and so the CIA apparently works at least one day a year. But uh, um, what I wanted to to tell you, I would like to take uh, the point of uh, Walter, for instance, uh, last year. And there is something which is called the fallacy of the prosecutor. Um, This is... um, um, I'm going to take the disc- the, the, the last discussion of last week and I'm going to point to certain statements but not in order. You come up you see with the the idea that after all you know why the United States would go to such a, a big fuss you know to do what they have done all the time and uh, they don't need to blow up tower and to do like that. And this is true and you know, you have this famous statistician in England, uh, Thomas Bayes, you know, in the 18th century, who would say that your statement is what he would call a prior. That means that before anything happens, uh, it's reasonable to think that you have a good life, you're a politician, you are not going to start blowing up a uh, tower and do things like that. But after, you have the evidence. So I take uh, your caller, Walter, from last week, and we are going to admit, you may not agree, but we are going to admit, that we have the evidence that building seven was uh, uh, brought down, because nobody has ever seen a building um, falling without any aircraft hitting it, and it, w- it was burning on near the south side, and no other building was investigated. And, and so let's, let's assume. That we have a new evidence now, that Building Seven was brought down. Yeah. Now, <laughs> according yes. So now, according according to Thomas Bayes, you know, he's a great statistician, the, the father of statistics. In fact, he will tell you, well, you have to reevaluate all your probability because now that the probability, because the, the question is, uh, is uh, September 11 an inside job of some kind? You know. Uh, Done by a foreign country or whatever. But you have to reevaluate all your probability knowing that Building 7 was brought down, and not only that, that we denied that it went down, then we botched the entire investigation, that the investigator was from Israel, basically the son of a Mossad uh, uh, agent. We have a lot of evidence. We say all those probabilities have to be updated, and therefore we have to relaunch the investigation.
1: Uh, Because uh, uh, let me stop you, because of the hour only, Eve. It's a very interesting call. I have said from the day after uh, the uh, 9/11 Commission report uh, that we need a new investigation because the 9/11 report is substantially flawed and probably deliberately so. So you're pushing at an open door here. I have been all these years demanding a new investigation. Harry is in Germany, in Bavaria, on the same subject. Go ahead, Harry.
21: Yes, hello,
19: George. I'd like to talk about 9/11 as well. Um, you've had a couple of callers on this subject already, and I'd just like to expand a little bit on that. Um, this organisation, architects and engineers for 9/11 Truth. Uh, this isn't a, a bunch of quacks. I know you've uh, been. Uh, you, you, you seem to be a bit dubious about this man, Richard Gage. No, I'm not.
1: Uh, I'm not at all dubious, and I would never uh be disrespectful to an architect or an engineer. I respect uh, their professional uh, uh credentials, of course.
19: Right. Well this organization no, I just actually don't know has, them, that's all. Yeah. This organization actually has the support of a lot of family members uh, who uh, have been uh, Trying to get to the tr- the truth in this matter, and if you if you take a look at the website of of this organisation, um, they will show you that it's it's virtually impossible that these buildings came down the way it was claimed by the U.S. government. The official uh, the official inquiry was was run by NIST, and uh, it, it was corrupt from the very beginning to the end. And anyone who's looked into that will 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 realise that it's uh, there. There has to be a new inquiry now. Richard Gage just looks at the technical aspects uh, of of, this build, of these buildings coming down. But um, if you if you want to look at other reasons behind it, you've you've said, well, why do the Americans need to do this? Well, it's a strong point, isn't <laughs> it, Harry? Yeah,
1: it's a strong point, isn't it?
19: Yeah, well, it allowed them to bring in the Patriot Act, but Homeland the,
1: Security. Why would you have to take a risk of that magnitude to bring in a Patriot Act? Bush was the president.
19: But the the, the, Americans the
1: Democrats have... support uh, securocratic mass surveillance uh, measures. Why would you need to take the risk of the electric chair for everyone involved, and there'd have to be a large number of people involved, in order to pass a Patriot Act.
19: But George, no one, no one who's done this in the past has ever got the electric chair. They, they blew up the USS Maine. They, 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 uh, they staged the Gulf of Tonkin
1: incident. Yes, but if any one of the people involved in lacing the Twin Towers with explosives to bring them down had blown the whistle, the entire administration would have gone to the electric chair?
19: No, oh, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. They—they they have the means to 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 uh, put through a, a cover-up. There, uh, this is this is not beyond. I'm Why not, I'm has not...
1: one person involved in this vast crime never been identified and never come forward uh, to uh, clear their conscience? Why?
19: If uh, there have been people, there have been people who have spoken out, and people have been silenced.
1: All right, Harry, that's enough. 9-11, Ed, especially if we're going to get Mr. Gage on uh, next week. Uh, thanks for the call. Let's change the subject. Sean is in Stevenage. Go ahead, Sean.
7: Hey, George, how are you doing? Good. Good, good, good. The 9-11 stuff is all fascinating.
1: Yes, grimly fascinating.
7: Well, yes, yes, and I got my own views, but I'm not going to add to your pain on that please, one. Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I like the interview with Bob Wiley earlier. Yeah, it very good.
1: Yeah, on, the great big man yeah.
7: Yeah, pick up on what he was saying and, and a, in a broader context about the British financial services industry and the, and, and the state of capitalism in this country. Less people forget, in 2008, we had the banking credit crunch, so called. That cost this country £1.5 trillion. That figure was announced by David Cameron when he first took office. I think it's in Hansard somewhere, the Telegraph and The Guardian, various articles that put together the total cost of this country. It cost us ostensibly ten years of austerity after that to pay for it. Yeah. Where you look in, with some folks say there's estimates and extrapolations that 130,000 people died because of that. It's cost us libraries, community centres, public services, council services, etc., etc. Fast forward to just nearly 10 years ago and the Carillion collapse and InterServe nearly collapsing, we've learned nothing. Those four accountancy firms that were mentioned, they were the ones that signed off the books.
1: Yeah, how do they get away with that, Sean? How do they get away with that? How do they get away with it? They get bigger and bigger and bigger. Doesn't matter (laughs) how many disasters occur under their watch. Indeed. And here they are again, signing off Carillion with a massive black hole.
7: The truth is they make way more money from mergers and acquisitions by approving firms to buy firms, saying they go in a good state of health to buy firms, and approving those firms to be bought. That's the way many of these large companies have kept on growing. They've had no organic growth. We have a zombie economy, which is surviving on printed money and bond and guilt asset purchase facilities, which the Bank of England does. Fast forward to now, we've got this so-called COVID crisis. It's not because of COVID. The economy was collapsing before COVID hit. If you like, the engine was stuttering, the big ends were failing, we had an oil leak, and then the cooling system sprung a hose. That's the COVID piece coming in. It's just accelerated it and exacerbated it. When this COVID thing gets over and the furlough scheme ends and we finally come out of some of this, there's going to be the mother of all depressions. I'm sure of it. Because many of these zombie firms have been bailed out, but they're still not going to be in a good state of health. Sunak announced 350 billion quid, 30 or 40 billion of that, to subsidise firms to pay people's wages. Where's the other 310 billion gone? If you go on the Bank of England website, you'll see they've spent, I looked about well, about four or six weeks ago now, up to 600 billion already on asset purchase. This is gilts and bonds being issued to big firms to prop up their share price and to give them liquidity. This is so we're heading for another trillion pound already before all the furlough scheme ends, all the small businesses collapse. People go back to jobs that already firms have got plans for shifting stuff offshore again, which they always have. This will accelerate it. There's going to be mass job losses and layoffs, because and particularly because small businesses have received virtually no help. No, that's
1: right. And on both sides of the border. Sean, that is one heck of a call. Thank you very much for making it. Sarkar is in Glasgow on a very interesting story that is developing in Scotland. Go ahead, Sarkar.
21: George, fantastic, Sean. Thanks so much for you know having me on the Thank show. You. George, first of all, uh, I don't know what to say. You know the hate crime bill, which has been proposed by Hamza Youssef, the yes. justice uh, yes. man in SNP. It has been opposed by his own parties, the police, the lawmakers, everyone. This man and SNP and Nicholas Sturgeon, because they just don't seem to get this is a recipe for disaster I don't know what is going wrong with them and what is the problem And they know there's such a friction in this bill amongst all the communities why are they not you know it's the most friendless
1: bill in the whole history of uh, the Scottish Parliament oh, honestly I'm, it I'm, has no friends the judges the police uh, the journalists the churches everybody's against it but they're pressing on regardless
21: Honestly, George, and you know something, uh, you know, as much as I'm, you know, uh, despise everything what the SNP does, because I remember once I spoke to you a few weeks ago, you called them Blairites with the kilt on. That was the perfect description, George. Mm. And George, one more thing I'd like to let you know, I'm happy seeing them getting a taste of their own medicine. They love separatism, don't they? Guess what? Shetlands now wants to be separate from Scotland. And
1: Orkney, and Orkney.
21: Thank you, There you go. So now Nicola Sturgeon will know how it feels to face her own music. uh,
1: Now there's no oil. It's Scotland's oil, becomes Uh Shetland's
21: oil. Shetland's oil. And that was the whole premise of their independence from when it was in 2014, that the entire oil would be ours. Now on one hand, Scotland says we're going to go to green energy, and on the other hand, they sell these foolish people. Oil is ours. We can rule the world with that. Come on, you cannot balance that. you cannot that's civil- brilliant.
1: Uh, a brilliant call, Sarkar i 'd keep it going, but for the hour, uh, but I, I 'll I'll add only this: The only way to keep Scotland united is to keep Scotland in the United Kingdom. That is actually the only way. Scotland spent centuries as warring principalities, uh, uh, and they will all reemerge. Uh, Scotland has been one single country longer in Britain uh, than it ever was uh, in history uh, before the act of union, certainly before the union of the crowns uh, in the very early 17th century. So the longest period of Scottish unity has been inside the British state. But if there's to be separatism, then all kinds of people will demand uh, that they want to separate from this separatist Scotland, Shetland, which has the oil, Orkney, which has some of the oil. Uh, These are uh, places that look north. They are Nordic uh, people. Uh, They were actually given to the British crown as a wedding present. They belong to the crown not to the SNP and they will never agree uh, to uh, leave Britain for a separatist Scotland in Edinburgh which might as well be in Timbuktu for them. Edinburgh is no nearer to them than London is politically uh, speaking but it won't just be that. Uh, Dumfries and Galloway, uh, will never agree to be torn out of Britain against their will. They'll have to redraw uh, the border. You see my point? You begin the, the ulsterization of Scottish politics is something I'm going to address tomorrow night at 8 o'clock uh, online on my Facebook, Twitter, etc. Uh, because I'm very concerned, as I think you already know, About the possibility of the breakup of this country after more than three hundred years. Last call is from Australia. It's Bruce on Japan and World War Two. Last week's topic. Bruce wants to weigh in. Let's hear him. Go ahead. Yes, good
11: night, George. At the end of the war and about um, Japan still being. well, in relation to their atrocities, uh, etc, which also applies to Germany and other countries that have happened since, but uh, you really have to when the war actually comes to an end, those countries are absolutely obliterated, there's a change of government and everything else, and basically, you actually have to forgive and pass on, otherwise, if you don't forgive.
1: What about compensation still... when they become rich, Bruce? Um, Germany Germany has paid out a lot of compensation. Japan's paid out none. I don't believe in that, actually. But I do believe in the the victims that are
11: involved with that have a right to uh, uh, make claim, uh, legal or otherwise. But but
1: my point, Bruce, is that Germany has atoned for its crimes. It has apologised endlessly for them. It never lets an occasion go by, an anniversary go by, without again atoning for and sincerely apologising for the crimes that were committed by a previous state. But Japan hasn't done any of that, none of that at all. Instead, Japan has been endlessly rewarded for uh, uh, acting as a dagger, a potential dagger, At the heart of America's enemies uh, in Asia. And that's what I cannot uh, uh, allow to go uh, undenounced because there are many people still alive, fewer obviously all the time, uh, that suffered at the hands of the rampaging uh, Japanese fascist empire, which killed millions, tens, scores of millions of people. And made slaves of substantial numbers of people. And they haven't even apologized, never mind giving them a little bit of compensation. That's why I can't accept it. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. See you next week.